If you're a fan of film and music, then have I got a substack for you. Fiveyears.substack.com. That's the number five years.substack.com, where you can read reviews of both favorite films, favorite songs, and new releases. You'll even get to vote on future titles and much, much more. Jim's not on Patreon anymore, so go to fiveyears.substack.com since he plans to write for at least five more years. Subscribe today. Welcome to an exciting, incredible new episode of Director's Club. One might say it could get a little animated. I am your host, Jim Laskowski, and I have not just one, but two incredible guests to join me today. Both first timers on the show definitely won't be their last. Not only do they host the Incinerator podcast that I enjoy immensely, they have separate podcasts and projects that they hone all on their own. We'll learn all about those soon. Please welcome to the show, Billy Ray Bruton and Ryan Verrill. Hello. Hey, hey. hey. Uh, welcome. So happy to have you here. Delighted to be here. It's a lovely it's a lovely Sunday here in Seattle, which means it's not my type of weather, so I'm happy to be in a podcast. It's not raining and overcast no, and cold and it's not. It, it, this is our first sunny day we've had in about nine days, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shouldn't be eighty degrees at this point in in the year for us, but you know, could be global warming. You know, but <laughs> no, that is a, we know that that is a hoax and that, yeah, that doesn't right. exist. And like, know, it's just I the know. seasons changing, Jim. It's just the seasons. You're right. Absolutely, but when October comes around, I'm I'm ready to break out the hoodies. You know, I'm not I'm not thrilled about it being 80 and sunny over yeah. here myself. So, well, you know, we all grew up, you know, knowing that whenever the season changed from spring or uh, from summer to fall, that meant that the water levels were going to rise six inches. So, I mean, it's just exactly. all comparable, right? For sure. How's the weather by you, Ryan? Uh, it is unseasonably warm. I am in the mid nineties in <gasps> Kansas City and not happy about it. Wow, here I, just, I am complaining about eighties. I just had to comment on the fact that, like, off mic, we were just talking about how we're not morning people anymore and how old we are, and we kicked this off by talking about the weather. I know <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're just leaning so hardcore into middle age right now. I know. What kind of blood pressure meds are you guys on? Uh, well, I mean, well, technically I'm on, <laughs> you joke, I'm on five milligrams of amlodipine and I'm on a hundred milligrams of Losartan. So uh, thank you for your concern. You actually just reminded me to take my meds. So thank you. Oh, that's good. That's a good thing. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I also take one high blood pressure medicine and, you know, just got to watch the that sodium intake. Well, uh, well, no, that's why you take the meds, right? So you don't have to watch true. the sodium intake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. But, you know, my days of consuming too much canned soup and fast food are, are long behind me now. Doctor's orders. <laughs> well, that so, makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's good for it's good for the long run anyway. So anyway, this is not the uh, aging club or <laughs> uh, this is all about filmmakers, directors, movies. So since this is your first time, like, I want to know about your about both of your origin stories. Oh, particularly since I, I've yet to actually speak to Ryan outside of uh, Facebook messages and keeping up with his uh, terrific show. The disc connected. Uh, let's start with you, Ryan. I want to know, like, you know, how all this started for you, and what what led to you becoming a cinephile in the first place. Sure, I uh, I grew up in a tiny town in the desert of California. That because it was so small and like poverty ridden in this terrible town, uh, they only had uh, all all the mainstream movies. So every every time we even went to like a mom and pop rental place. I had no way to get any of these deep cut films and Mm. uh, grew up with some of these. Like uh, my parents showed me Halloween when I was eight and it scared the shit out of me, of course. And uh, immediately I said, I enjoyed that feeling. I want more of that. Uh, Eventually I got into the music scene. I used to, I used to do scheduling for uh, shows, did a lot of booking, volunteered at a radio station and made friends with a lot of bands. And somehow a lot of bands are deeply passionate about movies and they would be, you know, sitting on my couch and going, Hey, have you ever seen this? And I'd be like, I've never even heard of that. They said, well, we got to watch it. (laughs) And somehow my love of passion grew from friends that were in bands all across the country that would stay at my house. And I eventually started going to, you know, circuit city every single Tuesday morning to check out for new releases of physical media. And that's where a lot of this passion grew because I'd pick up, why are there eight different cover options of what is this? The evil dead two. I've never seen this. So I would pick that up and fall in love and uh, it's just sort of blossomed from there. Yeah. It's interesting. Evil dead two was one of my gateway uh, horror films in general. Like it starts, it's funny. I say gateway, but it, you know, it started with the gate <laughs> and then <laughs> evil dead two, even strangely enough, because I just talked about it in another podcast, Poltergeist 3 was one that I saw a lot. It's not a great movie by any stretch. I just thought the effects were cool, and that's what got me into horror. But in, you mentioned Circuit City, rest in peace. I uh, I loved going there to not only check out the physical media, but they had those great listening stations where you could listen to CDs before you buy them. That's how I first heard Fiona Apple actually, and who wound up becoming one of my favorite songwriters. So nice. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, the, the, the days of like borders and well, I mean, Barnes and Noble is still around, but circuit city, Best Buy, all those big chain stores. Uh, if you lived in, (laughs) yeah, if you lived in a small town or just, you know, the, uh, the kind of suburbs you, you would see in Tim Burton movies or something, (laughs) you were basically, you didn't have your. You didn't always have a mom and pop store around. You had to go to those big chains, exactly. And, and that's what I did as well. But that's that's great to hear. And and so your your love of physical media just sort of blossomed from there and led to 
um, the disconnected. How did that? Uh, I mean, when did that begin for you? Just this 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 show and your your decision to you know uh, just celebrate physical media the way you do. Yeah, uh, it really started around 2018 or so, and uh, just started with like. I'm going to share pics of stuff that I pick up and, uh, you know, share them on Instagram or something. And it was doing okay for a little while. And then I had to stop because my kids were at an age where, uh, we were looking into, um, therapies and stuff because both of my kids are special needs. So I took the responsible route and stepped away and, uh, put all of my time and energy and money into making sure that they were supported in the best ways as they were growing. And eventually, of course, we all ended up at home for three years. And uh, right after the beginning of the pandemic, I found myself unable to go to as many therapy appointments Mm. and uh, not needing to spend as much because we were basically told you need to stay home with them. That's the only thing that's safe right now. So uh, once that happened, I just sort of got back into it. I was sitting at home and found myself ordering more physical media and focusing on that. And uh, the YouTube channel really grew out of the fact that I saw others that had YouTube channels that were sharing information that I knew to be patently false. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oops. (laughs) I I guess the OCD side of me hated that. Sure. And I, I wanted to make sure that I was giving something back to what I felt was a sorely missing spot in the community. So I said, I'm going to start what is essentially an educational channel about physical media and the films that are associated with them. And that's primarily what I focused on since then. Uh, and it's so good too, because yeah, I, I, I wish I could afford everything <laughs> that gets, <laughs> gets, you know, mentioned, on social media where I see like, God, that sounds great. I want to buy this. I want to buy that too. Uh, but yeah, no, the lockdown, that period of time really changed everything because as much as I've subscribed to podcasts for years and years and years and the, the film spotting trivia and certainly following shows like screen drafts, it became more interactive than ever. And I felt really grateful for that to sort of help, help, get through all the anxieties of what was going on in the world. Right. And that's also how I met and discovered a certain Billy Ray Bruton. Oh, um, hello. Yes. Hello. Yes. <laughs> uh, you were, you are a regular on screen drafts. You're what, what is the, what's the term that they, Oh, use? I believe the term is legend, sir. Oh yes. Well, that would make complete sense. Yes. Um, and <laughs> that's uh, certainly how I discovered you. And I think we might've, been on film spotting trivia together a few times. Yeah. Uh, and that was, a, that was a joy uh, as, as well. Uh, oh, probably videots trivias too, right? You yeah, yeah. There. yeah. Yeah. I did videots a lot. I hosted videots trivia with clay and them a lot as well. Yeah. When yeah. I, when no, I lived those, in LA. Yeah. Right. No, those were great. Uh, and yes. And, uh, and just recently enough, I've had the privilege of being able to appear on your great podcast movie mixtapes, but I would also like the audience here to learn more about you since, um, yeah, I, I discovered you through your penchant for hot takes as one might say. <laughs> that, seems, <laughs> but, that seems to be, uh, what most people know me from. Yes, for sure. And if you go back to some screen drafts episodes, you'll get to hear those. And, uh, well, uh, more often than not, I would applaud your audacity, sir. I wouldn't. I wouldn't roll my eyes or think you're you're insane. Uh, it was more just like, wow, that's bold, <laughs> and you know, good on you for it, for sure. I've been following the majority of your shows and continue to be a fan. But uh, what got you hooked on film at a younger age? Oh well, <clears throat> um, well, I I mean, 
I don't know that there was any particular one thing, but I would, every day when I got home from school, I would hop on my bike. Uh, there was a local video store about a mile away. And so I would just dr- ride my bike down to the Rosalie Plaza video. Hmm. And uh, I would spend a couple of hours every night putting, you know, when you would get the VHS tapes back, you would have to put the actual tapes back on the shelves and swap it out and blah, blah, blah. And like, I would do that for a couple of hours uh, to help Mike, the guy who ran the store out, because it was actually a very busy video store. And so he didn't have a lot of time to do that. So the, the films would just be stacked on the side. And so I would go down and I would go put those up. And then in exchange, he would let me take home a couple of movies every night. And so I would just go. I started with like one section, uh, whatever that section was, whether it was Westerns or international films or whatever. And I would just be like, I'm going to watch every film in this section. And so, and this was it, like five, six, seven years old, right? Oh, wow. so like I was probably the only seven year old watching Farewell, My Concubine. <laughs> um, but that's what I did, and that's and so then that led to me. I would buy like Roger Ebert's Video Home Companion, Golden Same. Video Hounds, Golden Movie Retriever, like all of those like great books, and I would go through and I would just mark every one that I had seen, and I was so determined to get through every single film in that book. So if I couldn't find it at the local video store, I would try to find it at Suncoast Movie Company in the mall, or I would try to find it at like the Blockbuster or uh, Hollywood Video that were about thirty minutes away. And I was just, I was just determined. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch every film in this book. I'm gonna watch every film in this section. I'm gonna memorize everybody who was in this film. And like for a while there, before I stopped really honing it, like I was pretty encyclopedic about my knowledge of like who shot this, who scored this, who was in this, when did this come out? Like what awards did it win? Like I was obsessed with that stuff as a kid. And, um, I clearly gravitated more towards horror. Uh, but I was all about every genre as a kid. And, and I did that. I didn't know at that point that I was going to grow up and have anything to do with films. I knew that I wanted to write films, uh, which, which I, which I've done, which has been great, but I didn't, you know, the idea of a podcast when you're five years old, that doesn't (laughs) even exist in your head. And, I'll be honest, like my love of film podcasts came uh, when I moved from Alabama to L.A. because I, I literally in the driveway of my parents home when I was about to drive out cross country, I was like, I want to find a new film podcast to watch or to listen to. And I didn't listen to any film podcast at the time. So it was like, I'm going to find one. And I found film spotting. And so I hit play in the driveway of my parents' house, and I didn't stop listening to it until I got to L.A. Oh, that's so and cool. I pretty much caught up on everything during that drive, um, everything that I could get access to at that point. And and that's kind of when I – because Film Botting is still my all-time favorite podcast, not a surprise sure. to people. Um, and uh, yeah, so that got me hooked on film podcasts, and I just started diving more and more. And similar to like what Ryan was saying about the YouTube stuff, I think what bugged me – about a lot of the film podcasts that I was listening to is it sounded, and I say this knowing that I'm saying it and I'm full of shit, right? Let me just be clear about that. But it felt like everybody was just talking about the same old films. (laughs) And like, it was like, how many times do I need to hear about the Godfather or Citizen Kane or like bullshit like that? Not bullshit and that they're bad films. It's just like, I'm tired of hearing it over and over again. Yes, we've all universally agreed that those are really good films, but like, come on, like like there's plenty of other films out there to talk about. And I was getting annoyed that a lot of those podcasts weren't doing that. And so during the pandemic, I was like, you know what? I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to, I'm going to capitalize on whatever 
20 people like me from screen drafts and, <laughs> and, and I'm going to start a podcast. And, uh, and so that's what I did. Thank goodness for that. Uh, cause you know, every, every once in a while, yeah, I'll listen to a show and the guest that comes on, I'm like, God, there, there, there's, there's such a good presence that I wouldn't mind hearing just them on a show on their own or obviously with guests like, and you sort of did like a little kind of a spinoff idea by turning your love of film into its own game uh, with the yeah. incinerator. How did that all be- come about? Well, it came about because I'm a jealous fucker and I was, <laughs> and I was really pissed off that cl- my good buddy Clay Keller came up with such an awesome premise for a podcast mm-hmm. and, uh, and a little backstory there. So I know Clay when I first moved back to LA. So I moved to LA back in 2020 or 2013 I was here for a couple of years. I went back home for about a year and then I went back to LA. And when I came back to LA that second time, I got a job uh, co-managing arena center lounge in Hollywood and clay was the other co-manager. And so we worked there together for about a year and a half. And that's how we became friends and got to know each other. And just when we both left that miserable, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad job, Eek. Um, clay started screen drafts. And that's kind of how we, I fell into that and um, I, I've lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the origin of the incinerator. Right, right, yes. right. So I was very jealous that Clay came up with such a cool concept. And I was like, well, I'm not, I can't straight up copy his concept. And, and I wouldn't either. But then I was like, oh, wait. Like, what if I take parts of, like, my two favorite podcasts, which at the time were film spotting and screen drafts what if i take my some of my favorite parts of both of these and merge them together and just see what kind of bullshit insanity can come out of it and that's how the incinerator was born it's it's equal part screen drafts equal parts film spotting and then uh a little extra you know pinch of chaos thrown in just for added measure i'll say a pinch (laughs) a pinch a pinch a cup a deluge (laughs) you know you know whichever you choose uh, but yeah, that's, that's really, that's really how it came about. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it, it was interesting because, you know, outside of film spotting, there isn't a lot of like film competition podcast out there. I mm. mean, there was like movie or there was like Schmodown, which is now defunct, but it was there for a while. And like, but mostly it's just like top 10 lists. And like, I love top 10 lists. I I'll listen to any top 10 list, frankly, but I wanted something that was the, uh, the uh, podcast equivalent of a highly weighted uh, European board game. And you've <laughs> succeeded at that. Um, and I, I always say like w- whenever a list comes up, even, even with, even with something like letterbox, I always say ranking art is silly, but I love it anyway. Oh, you know? absolutely. Well, that's the thing is like, but you know, here's the thing I'm going to push back on that because I've been hearing this since I was a kid, right? Because I was obsessed with the Oscars when I was a kid. Mm, Obsessed. Like, and I still am, frankly. But, like, I would hear all the time, oh, well, I don't do that sort of thing. Awards are meaningless and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, awards are meaningless if you're never going to win an award. Mm. (laughs) Awards are not meaningless to the people who win them. And they are helpful. Like Oscars help people. Like they help get you more money. They help get you better jobs. Like, they help. And that's why you see it's that's why it's rare when you see somebody not show up to accept an Oscar or turn down an Oscar because they mean something. And like I, I get a little I get a little tired of hearing people do the whole like, oh, they don't mean anything. It's like, yeah, they kind of do. 
Like everybody secretly kind of wants to win an award. Even the people out there say, and I won't, I won't name drop, but there is someone that I used to know who dated a friend of mine who went on to be like a huge, like huge star, huge star. And um, and she used to say all the time, awards mean nothing. She didn't want. She didn't ever want to come watch. She didn't want to watch award shows anything about it. But you know what? Since she got famous, she's been at every fucking award show she's been invited to. <laughs> and oh boy! And yeah. so it's like, yeah, you don't care about it until you're in it, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it'd be cool to win this. Yeah, if there were podcasting awards out there and I was nominated for something, I'd be into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I mean, like, you know, it makes sense. We can just all agree that awards, can't we all just agree that awards are kind of cool and that competition isn't a bad thing? Like, of I don't course. think competition is a bad thing at all. No, no, like, no. I agree. And, and the people out there, there are people out there who are like, you know, oh, well, you know, comp- competing doesn't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, shut up. Like, I just don't have time for that. Competing is cool, <laughs> awards are cool. Let's get over the whole like anti celebrating our achievements thing. Yeah, and I grew up with Roger Ebert, and he always had a top ten list at the end of the year, and he that's sure just something I'm going to be doing probably for the rest of my life. And sometimes when people don't rank them, I'm like, I like that part. <laughs> you know, I understand yeah. why people don't get into it, or they just feel again that ranking art is kind of arbitrary oh, and silly. Yeah, and, but like, and, I, and, it's, I still find joy doing it. I don't know. It's and it's I don't. I don't want to sound like the guy just like shitting on it because there are people like, uh, you know, there are really great critic friends of mine who don't believe in ranking stuff. And I don't I don't think that they're I don't necessarily I don't think they're wrong. I don't think they're awful. Right. I think they genuinely just don't like putting one form of art in front of the other. And I respect that. Like, I I absolutely respect that. I know I went on a tangent about awards, which is not quite (laughs) not quite top 10 list. They're tangentially linked, but not quite the same. But like. I respect people who don't want to do that. And like, I actually, sometimes I don't even do it. Sometimes when I release my top stuff, I just, if it's been a really exceptional year and we're talking about like splitting hairs in terms Mm -hmm. of the films that I love, I'll just do it alphabetically. Sure. Right. Like, Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it. It's just kind of what the critic wants to do. But Roger Ebert is my like, all-time cinematic idol, him and Gene Siskel. And so I tend to follow suit with a lot of what they did because they were such huge, important parts of culture to me. Yeah, same here. That's especially when you live in Chicago, your life, your whole life. Oh and, gosh, I know. You know. I can imagine. I mean, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I just hung out with, you know, Chaz Ebert at a wedding, you know, and that was surreal. It was very surreal for me. And, you know, communicating to her just like how much, Roger meant, and you know, I, I'm sure she hears it a lot, but it's just one of those things too, where it's it's kind of unbelievable to me that I'm a part of, you know, Chicago Film Critics Association because I'm just not as active as some other critics because I have a day job and do other things. So it's just it's just funny to me too, and I'm I'm really grateful for for what you've done and certainly screen drafts, and I know that uh, I. <laughs> I remember hearing because, uh, you know, everybody has a Patreon and they do it so well, including screen drafts. And they did a, an in-memoriam draft that you were a part of with Richard Donner after yep. he passed. Yep. And I, I loved it. And at the same time, as I was listening to it, it was the first time that I kind of go, I want to do my own. I really want to. So for when we did a Richard Donner episode, I said, OK, we're going to scrap the usual format. I want to do a draft. And then, of course, I tweeted out on social media and Clay is like, "Mm, 
I kind of don't want you to do this because <laughs> like every yeah. show is going to start doing this. And yeah, I get it. No, I totally understand why. It's like that's his baby. Really. Oh, absolutely. And like yeah. and like, you know, and like I, I went to Clay with Incinerator. Like I wasn't just going to start that podcast without talking to him because I mean, you know, he's also one of my best friends. So it's like I'm not going to just. But yeah, he, you know rightfully so he's sure. protective of, of his baby and it's not like he knows he didn't invent movie competition podcast like he's not he's not like some egomaniac who thinks he created something like that but he did sort of create the idea of like a sports-centered draft with films and so right. i understand that he's protective of that and and i think he's right i think i think if he's not protective of it the way he is it's going to be everywhere right and yeah. you're going to see well, the every- big picture kind of does it now, too. I know a lot of podcasts have started doing it. And, and this is one of those. Yeah. And this is one of those occasions when I can say, you know what? It's cool that you're doing it. But like, I know who created it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and you're all great creators in your own right. Uh, some, so some quick housekeeping in case listeners don't know, because I honestly don't know if I brought this up recently in, in the, in the past few months with the episodes I've put out, but I now have a Substack newsletter, uh, which is inspired oh. a bit by, uh, some, some, some local Chicago film critics like Robert Daniels and Mariah Gates, among right. many others. I just, I just really got into Substack. You know, it's one of those things too, where it's like, Oh yeah, there's a lot of different types of newsletter platforms out there. And certainly people use Patreon in a similar way. Uh, but I, I just really took to it. And especially once I subscribed to Mariah's, uh, Substack. So I'm, I'm doing that now. Uh, and I'm going to maintain it for at least five years when I turn 50. Hence the name of the site is five years.substack.com. That's the number five years.substack and that's where you can catch up with reviews and some upcoming chicago international film festival titles uh i might i might include some director interviews there as well but those are also available at the uh, directors club podcast website but i i encourage you all listening if you're a fan of this here show um yeah come support me at at substack i mean you could just be a free subscriber i don't mind (laughs) i'm not in this for the money um but yeah i just i really like substack and i really i make sure to support other writers on there too. Um, so yeah, uh, just wanted to give a quick plug to that. I know. Thank you, Ryan, for being a subscriber. That's very kind of you. Well, and I was waiting a moment, but genuinely it's some of the better writing on stuff that I've been able to dive into for a long time, especially oh, on that's music. So sweet. Cause there's not a lot of people that focus on music centered oh. items anymore. So that's true. I forgot to mention that it's not all film related. I basically writing, about films I've loved and songs that I've loved from, from the past. Uh, there's also just, you know, reviews sort of like capsule reviews of new um, releases and stuff, but mainly it's focused on, I try to once a week write about a favorite film or a favorite song. So I'm trying to get those done. I'm trying to maintain it all with everything else, but I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy with it. And I'm glad that more people are subscribing and supporting. So yeah, thank you again, Ryan. Uh, yeah. So with all that out of the way, we have one legendary filmmaker to discuss today on the show, and I'm, of course, talking about Mr. Don Bluth. They're, they're, they're fairy tales. Um, is there a, um, a religious message or a moral message or anything like that? Do you know what? I, no, I, that's a good question. I, I always think that there has to be a punchline to something you're seeing. If you're going to sit there in the dark for 75 minutes, at the end of it, I want you to have a take home. 
and you can think about it, you know, and it stays in your head. So if I tell you a story, it's because I want you to learn something, something about life, something about people. Uh, my One of my favorite producers of films is um, um, Frank Capra, who did It's a Wonderful Life, and he always does these beautiful little cameos of human nature, and I try and put that in all of our films so that there is something about the characters. I gather you're a fan, Billy Ray. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a massive fan who has been looking for an outlet to talk about Don Bluth for s- several years now. Well, yeah, and I certainly was familiar with him and grew up watching some of his titles as a kid. Uh, it's interesting going back and watching them now as an adult because there were ones I really strongly connected to and others I was like, hmm, these are kind of a mess, but still an interesting mess nonetheless. So, yeah, I guess like when he was about four years old, his parents took him to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and cut to many years later. He's like, this is this is my this is my bag. I'm going to be an animator. This is all, all I want to do. And for about 20 years, I think he worked on a variety of renowned Disney projects. Yep. And yeah, he's done, you know, a whole bunch of different things outside of the films that he's responsible for. Uh, but he was not a big fan of Disney at one point. He sort of just abandoned them and said, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing because I'm not feeling what you guys are doing anymore. So he sort of went on to establish his own career. Uh, and w- by doing that, he re- kind of reshaped the future of animation. So we're going to just basically dive into the majority of his filmography. I'm I'm particularly high up on his earlier work. Sure. And you know, I'm sure you, you both of you can defend on a, a couple of other films that was mostly mixed yeah. on, but yeah. yeah. Um, let's just start because uh, he did have a couple of short films before his feature length debut. And as a cat person, I had to track down Banjo, the woodpile <laughs> cat. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was cute. It was adorable. And, you know, it's kind of like, again, what you expect from that era and a short film, with a short story and most of his stories I think are very simple and straightforward. And, but you know, that's not a criticism. It's just kind of my adult brain sometimes doesn't want to have a conversation with my kid brain. You know, it's like I'm focused so much on like, yeah, this, I know exactly where this is going and I can't just like immerse completely into the world, but I can't help it when a cat is lost and gets sad. How can I not think of my own cat? You know, right. getting lost. <laughs> I just get a little, yeah, teary-eyed uh, throughout this story because the little cat gets lost and just wants to make his way back home. But yeah, you know, I I, I enjoyed it. I, I I think it's slight, but it, it's it's like a good starting point for for things to come with with uh, with Bluth. So it's good. It's good. Uh, I, I found this one as well, and I really took away from this one that he is a, sort of a master at animating loneliness. He takes yes. the emotion of the animated cats that are the same style as animated cats in four of his other films, at least. <laughs> and somehow he brings this emotion to them in even a short film that I don't know that it is felt like that from any other Disney films. Mm. That's a good well, point. <clears throat> no, I mean, well, he also like Bluth came, when Bluth was working for Disney, he was working through the working with them through their what I call their identity crisis. Hmm. Yep. Because yeah. they had just come off all of those big early successes. Now we're talking about now we're in the Robin Hood, 
the rescuers, the Fox and the Hound, like Pete's dragon era where Disney is really trying to figure out where they exist sort of in the cinematic landscape. And that, not to say that these aren't fun films, they are, but like no one looks at Robin Hood with the same sort of, you know, as, as they do Pinocchio or Dumbo or things like that. Like they are second tier Disney to a degree. And I think what makes those films sort of similar in certain ways is they lack a lot of that emotion that the earlier Disney films had. And I, I my guess, and this is me like ascribing something to Don Bluth that may not even be accurate, but like the way I look at it is I feel like he probably got involved with Disney because of his love for those earlier films, which were so emotionally resonant, only to then be thrust into a situation where he's doing these films that don't rely so much on the emotion as they do like the conceit or action or or set pieces or things like that. And he probably wanted to go off and do something that made him a little bit happier, uh, that had a little more emotional connectivity. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's what surprised me about a few of his works is that I didn't get, I mean, I think Pixar changed everything and really raised the bar. I mean, just the first 10 minutes of up alone, I'm bawling, right? Like most people would. Oh yeah. So, so it's like me going back to some of these movies and not getting that like, you know, sense of wallop, <laughs> you know, I feel yeah. like that it's kind of unfortunate in that regard because I, um, you know, I'm not, a huge follower of all animation. I don't venture out to see everything that comes out, but of course I'm going to prioritize Pixar because I know I get that same <laughs> sense of, you know, personal connection to some of those stories, you know, like the toy story movies alone. I'm just like a complete wreck watching those. Whereas, you know, if I go backwards sometimes and I, I kind of miss that feeling of like, I am so into this and I'm so moved by it. Uh, and that's not to say that's true of all of Don Bluth's movies, because I think at least the first three, I am kind of a wreck at certain points. So that's not to take away from that either. No, he certainly agreed. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about Bluth's own personal output is he sort of did a reverse. Dis he sort of did exactly what Disney did, right? Mm -hmm. Like he started like the, the system that he left, which is he started out with these films that are really emotionally resonant. They have these, these great characters. And then he started doing films that were more action oriented, that relied on more of these like goofy conceits. And so he really did exactly what Disney did. A couple of exceptions in there that we'll talk about, but he kind of, he, I feel like he left Disney for a certain reason and then ended up like creating his own future by doing that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I guess, just like given the direction that that Disney was taking after, you know, losing the creator of all of that in, in like 1966, he just he saw no other way to keep the art of animation thriving in interesting ways because it, it, they were getting a little stale and he wanted to do something a little bit outside the norm. And he, he really did and, and certainly got dark in ways that I don't think even audiences were prepared for. So we can even just jump right to that with the secret of Nim, um, a movie that I saw in the theater with my mom. And I don't remember if it was like a huge crowd or not. Like I usually can picture that in my head, like, Oh my God, every seat was filled or like all the kids were into it or, you know, remembering when I first saw ET or something like that. But in this case, I don't think this was a huge hit. Uh, <coughs> But I mean, I, a lot of people, I wouldn't say detractors of Bluth, but people would often just sort of reduce him to say like, he just got caught up trying to out Disney Disney. 
Right. And I don't know. I feel like it's a nice amalgam of the strengths of Disney, but just bringing it to a darker place and making it his own. But he also was good friends with um, collaborators, Gary Goldman and John uh, Pomeroy, Pomeroy. And, you know, I really think right out of the gate, he created something remarkable here because it moved me when I was a kid and it moves me today because it really is just at, at the core, just a story about a mother who would do anything to protect her dying child. And how could you not feel, you know, for, for these characters and what they're going through and particularly, you know, our, our, our protagonist here. So, I mean, it's just, I found it incredibly moving. I can see people sort of finding like a push and pull kind of tone, tonal clash with like having, you know, Jeremy the crow as your comic relief in the midst of all these darker themes and things taking place throughout. But I found it all meshed together really, really well. I mean, Mrs. Brisby is a wonderful character to follow. So, I mean, I, this could still end up being my favorite, but it really is like a toss up between this and pretty much the next one we'll talk about. So what are your guys' <laughs> thoughts? Ryan, what do you think of the secret of Nim? Cause I think it's pretty remarkable for, especially for a debut from him, like a feature debut. Well, this is where uh, I have to show my hand a little bit because I am certainly the, the youngest of the three of us just by a little bit. And I was not alive when this came out. Mm. So I saw this for the first time last month. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know how. I just never caught up to this one. It was just not something that my parents were into. I really started with the next one. But this is one that I had heard about so many times, had no idea what Nim was until I watched it and was blown away how adult the underlying story was here. Uh, I was just fascinated with the animation. This was something that blew me away on first time watch. I loved this this time. Uh, Really, the, the main point that I took away from this is... I am so glad that Bluth left Disney and uh, something that we should probably touch on just a little bit is not only did Bluth leave Disney, but he talked a whole, basically he unionized a group of individuals to all leave Disney and start their own conglomerate of this animation studio. And it was such a remarkable decision. And basically they left to make this and it was done in such a perfect way that I I, I can't imagine a world where they didn't get a chance to do this because it it was so it feels like it was destiny basically that everything came together perfectly. I feel like the voice acting is some of the best that he's done in all of his films here. Uh, the casting is incredible. Dom DeLuise, who's in many of his films, God, I love Dom DeLuise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The the owl here it was terrifying in some of the scenes. You know the John fact that we show. Oh yeah. Man. The fact that we show actual blood in a couple scenes was unheard of in animation at that time. Mm-hmm. I yeah, fascinating watch in 2023. Absolutely. I'm assuming yeah. you're a fan, Billy Ray. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. I am a big. I'm a big fan of this film. Um, yeah this this one holds a special. This came out at a time like I feel like this film was more inspired, honestly, by Watership Down. Than it was by any of his like, I think this was a time when you were seeing some animators and some animation go down darker paths and explore these more mature themes. And I would argue also that for me, and I've always said this, I feel like Pixar has borrowed more from Don Bluth than they have like 
Disney, frankly, mm-hmm. in terms of like the way they approach their projects and the emotionality behind those projects. And this is such a simple movie. It is such a simple story. Like you said, it is about a, it is about a mother who will do anything to save her son. And the animation is gorgeous. It's unlike at that point, it's unlike anything anybody's seen animation wise. Like it's kind of a a game changer at that point. And without this film, I don't know that you ever really see Disney get its act together. Um, I think there's another film coming up that is part to that too, because I don't think we don't Disney isn't what we know it without Don Bluth, because he actually lit a fire under them. To, to kind of get their shit together and start doing things that were more akin to what they had done in the early days because they actually had competition now. They actually had somebody who was making these films on such a grand scale with like big name voice actors. And this didn't blow up the box office, but it did okay. I think it yeah. did double its budget. This was back when, you know, marketing budgets weren't as huge as they are now. It certainly did well enough for him to get an opportunity to do another film, which is, of course is the film that blew him out of the water. But yeah, this one is just, it's dark it's it's lonely it's it's sad it's funny it's like everything you want in a film kind of rolled up into one dom DeLuise is in all is such a great addition to all of a lot of these dom blue films that we're going to talk about i i just yeah secret of nim i i read the book after i saw the film and and i i mean i love the book too but um by uh robert c o'brien i heard it's even darker and it is that's, yeah i've i've heard that like even it's People much who, more akin to Watership Down. That's why, okay. I, because because those books are both very similar in like the tones that they're setting and the seriousness with which they're taking the material, which I think is really important. Like, well, you know, you watch Watership Down, and like that movie is like a straight up drama. That's a straight up adult movie. It just happens to be animated. Yeah, no, I mean, it puts its it, this story puts its characters into genuine peril. Yeah, you know, and you kind of really get like anxious at times, but. I mean, I know in the book, because <laughs> I read a review that wasn't as crazy about this film because they had read the book first and kind of went, yeah, he, he, he kind of held back a little bit, surprisingly. You know, like he didn't include some sort of flashback where the rats are being tortured and tested on or something. And yeah, I yeah. don't know. That seems like it's going. I mean, that's that's asking a lot. <laughs> you know, that's I mean, in, in a sense, this is kind of a a film where he's shaking his fist at older generations at, at Disney and demanding do better, do more. Yeah. Uh, you know, get, let's get a little darker. I think kids should experience that because then they can, you know, appreciate the light, you know? And I think I really, I, even when I was a kid, I, I, I actually really liked things that were about death. <laughs> I mean, I was a peanuts fan, you know, and th- that those things are like, all melancholy and depressing and depressing at times. And it's sort of acknowledging that, you know what, you're going to be sad, man. You're going to, as a kid, cause being a kid can be lonely, you know? And absolutely. I, and so that's why I like, I appreciate movies from this era, especially seeing them at the time. Um, it just sort of prepared me in a way. And I, I, I understood where these characters were coming from and the emotional stakes and everything. And it, it all works beautifully here. I, I really like, um, Derek, uh, Derek Jacoby or Jacoby, yeah, too yeah. here as as uh, Nicodemus. <laughs> uh, once I saw his name was going to be on there, I'm like, oh, I bet he's going to do great voice work, and everybody does great voice work here, yeah. as expected. And and just the, like the background paintings, the animation itself is gorgeous, as I expected o- it to be. The other film I want to liken this to, which I think this owes a lot to that film as well, is 1973 Charlotte's Web. 
Ooh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That, definitely. Okay. That's the yeah. Hanna Barbera film, and and again, like if you go back and watch that film, like it's a fun film, but it is a dark, sad, like very direct film, and it's certainly made for kids, but it's made for kids that it's determined to teach kids about things that a lot of other films didn't at the time, like death, like <laughs> things yeah. die, like. Things that you love can die. They can go away. And I know some people are like so risk averse and don't want to teach their kids about that until they're a certain age. But I'm like, it's important that kids know that. Like I knew that at a very young age. Like I I think it's important. I think parents who kind of coddle their kids from this stuff are kind of doing them a disservice a little bit. And so like I, I can feel Charlotte's Web and Secret of Nim. I can feel you know, Watership Down in there, but it's uniquely its own, right? He was able to take those things that he was inspired by and just have, you know, he has his own animation style, which we see throughout these films. And, um, yeah, yeah, I just, um, yeah, great. How, I mean, talk about a debut. Good Lord. No kidding. That's how I felt too, you know, completely. And Ryan, would you feel comfortable showing this to your kids? Uh, not only would I, I was able to share all of these with my kids over the last month. And it has been an incredible month. Uh, I have a seven year old and I have an eight and a half year old and literally none of them had they seen before. So it was nice to see them uh, enthralled by a couple of them, sort of bored by one or two. (laughs) And uh, the best part is multiple of these films led to a lot of questions and I'm, I'm not the type to, to stray away from those. So it was nice to be able to have those conversations. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, when we get to the film, I want you to tell us the one that was their favorite. <laughs> Will do. Okay. Yeah. So short, shortly after Anim, I know that um, Don, John, and Gary, they yeah, they formed the Bluth group to sort of work on other things, including video games uh, like Dragon's Lair. Uh, but this was, yeah, this was at a time too, though, uh, you know, especially in the mid 80s when the video arcade business crashed and like their their studio had to file for bankruptcy, but luckily in the mid '80s they sort of went on and develop a different studio together, which they would uh, employ like 350 people, and it was initially founded in California, but they moved to Ireland, and around that time they all teamed with Steven Spielberg. You might have heard of him, uh, and Amblin Entertainment. And went on to produce probably the most successful non-Disney animation film at the time, The Delightful An American Tale. Cue the song that we all know and love. <laughs> yep. Somewhere. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We can know. Yeah, go, go ahead. I don't, I don't know have a good voice. I'm not going to do okay. it. <laughs> Somewhere out there. Uh, and I, I, I watched the uh, I watched Five Goes West and I love how uh, she starts singing at the beginning of that movie and then like neighbors are telling her shut up and throwing things <laughs> at her. Yep. I thought that was yep. funny. Um, yeah. The sequel's great too, but yeah. I really still love this movie. I think it's kind of remarkable. It even steps things up thematically, I would say, because you know, you're talking about immigration here and uh, certainly like just the idea of perseverance to get, you know, find a better life for your family is kind of what kicks things off here. But there's just an, Oh my God, like a, a, an amazing sequence involving a storm that just like, I was like, damn, this animation is uh, like top level work. It is. It really just kind of blew my mind, the lightning and the waves and just, 
you know, everything about that whole sequence kind of blew me away. Uh, and it's just, it's just got so much going for it. You know, like sometimes I will say that in other of his other films of his, the songs will slow things down or I'm not as crazy about them. But here I thought like just about everything worked, you know, the, uh, there are no cats in America. Gotta love that. You know, <laughs> it really put me in a good mood. And then, you know, you get really invested in, in, in little Fievel's journey throughout. Um, it's, it's just powerful in every single way. And you really want to see everything work out for, for all of these characters here. So I just, I don't know, man. I mean, again, like I certainly loved his debut, but this one is pretty much neck and neck. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest animated films maybe ever made as far as I'm concerned. So well, I'll take exception only with your use of the words "one of." Mm, it yeah, is. No, this is my, <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. This is this is my favorite animated film ever. Well, that and, makes sense now. Why you wanted hands, to come on and talk about it? <laughs> yeah, hands down. End of story for me. I think this is a perfect film. I think, and, and I I say my favorite animated film. That's up against everything Disney's done, everything's Pixar's done, because Ooh. I feel like it just is. And like I feel like what this does so well is it just it captures this emotion early on and it never lets it go. Mm -hmm. And I have never rooted for a character in an animated film as much as I rooted for Fievel. And, and I'll be frankly, I think the sequel is not far behind this one. I think the sequel is fantastic. Oh, it's so um, much fun. It yeah. is really great. But this film to me, like I think the voice casting is so perfect and so unique. Like he's, he's using, he's using actors like, like Nehemiah Persoff. Like these just incredible <laughs> character actors and like who are just bring so much richness to these roles. And then, you know, you know, Madeline Kahn and Christopher oh, Plummer. Perfect. Yeah. Like, I mean, just like these incredible voice actors who like and that's an issue I have with so many voice with. And that's why I don't even hardly get into animated films anymore, except for Pixar and uh, Studio Ghibli stuff, because. Animated films don't care about the voice talent anymore. No. They just get the biggest stars that they can get. And I'm sorry, I don't give a shit about Ludacris voicing a character in an animated <laughs> film. I don't give a fuck. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> they don't care anymore. They don't take time and attention into actually building out these voice casts. And and that's what pisses me off. And, like, that was not Don Bluth. Like, you can tell that they spent time on each one of these characters finding the exact perfect person to voice these characters. And like, that goes a long way for me. And like, even the smaller roles of the people that we don't even know, they may not be big actors, but by God, they've got incredible voices. Oh that, yeah, for sure. And it, it was around the time of like, I don't know, ants and shark tail where it's like, Oh, you're going to get Woody Allen to do a voice or you're going to get, um, Gosh, who was in Shark? Was it Will Smith? I can't. It remember. It was Will Smith. But yeah. at least Woody just, Allen. At least Woody Allen is a unique choice, right? No, that's no, that's true. Like it's that's just, a unique choice. But like you know, does who needs to hear Thomas Jane voice anything? <laughs> <laughs> who, needs, who needs Aaron Eckhart to voice anything? Like I'm sorry, no offense to Aaron Eckhart, but you don't have a remarkable voice, dude. Like no. I don't need to hear you do that. Like give me Michael Shannon. Like. Oh man, has he done voice work? I don't know, god. but it's a shame he, if he hasn't. Man, yeah, his his he, oh god, he would do so great. Oh god, he, he absolutely would, would. He would chew into it. Yeah, no, definitely. No, Thomas Jane just I just want him to be Todd from Boogie Nights and that's it. Uh but <laughs> no, I mean like no, the voice work here is just sublime. Like I was just kind of floored by every choice they made with with each character in terms of who they chose to cast. 
but I, this is like, yeah, it is, it is an all timer. Wouldn't you say Ryan? <laughs> uh, I would say this is up there. It is not quite my number one, like Billy Ray, but this is, uh, this is one that I knew that I was going to love again going into this, but this took on a whole new world for me and not to a make a whole all, new world, <laughs> not to make all of this super personal like I have so far, but uh, my day job, I work for immigration and oh, wow. my goodness, does this hit hard when you've been sure. doing that for the last decade? Uh, I, you know, just equating a lot of the feelings that I've heard and read about from people around me to a film that I saw when I was a child, but I haven't revisited this in, you know, 25 years probably. And so watching this again, uh, it is a completely different movie as an adult after working for immigration. And it is devastating in ways that I was not ready for. And uh, yeah, it's a masterpiece. How about this? How about we've known each other now for this long ride? And I didn't know you worked for immigration until just now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Yeah. Oh, just uh, the layers of the onion keep falling off. <laughs> That's why you got to keep doing so many podcast appearances, Billy Ray, because you're just going to keep peeling away at that onion. Hey, in another five find. years, in another five years, maybe I'll know his middle name. Ooh. <laughs> we'll keep that one under wraps for now. Yeah. Podcast goals. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, like, and this, this film was a, a huge hit. It was a big success. It like, it, it was, I, this was the film that let, I, this was the film that let Disney know we have competition. Oh like, yeah. Didn't, like, was something opening from Disney at the same time? Or am I thinking of the, of no, I, I think you're, I think it might be the remember. next, it might be, yeah, one, it, it, might it might be might the be, next one. Yeah. But yeah. But, but this is the film where they firmly know, Oh shit, we have competition, right? Like this film was very well received. It did well critically. It did well commercially. Like when you were a kid and I grew up, you know, this came out when I was four years old. So mm-hmm. it hit me at the exact right time. And when, when you were a kid, like I remember being a kid when this came out being four five, six years old, this was the shit. Like this was the movie that the kids liked. Like this was it. I remember watching this in school. I remember like like this was we grew up on this film and the next couple that we're going to talk about. But um, but boy oh boy, yeah, this one is just oh man. You said masterpiece. That's just the right way to say it. Like there's not one wasted second on an 81 minute film. Yeah, and it's so rewatchable. I could go back and watch it again tonight. <laughs> I, oh, I, I didn't absolutely. find. Yeah, and it's it's funny too because I don't I didn't read if like if there was actual, um, I don't know if a lawsuit or just in terms of like a a plagiarism, uh, you know, mention has been put upon this movie, but it's it's weird to see like because in our library we were doing a whole uh, promotion on the graphic novel uh, Mouse or <laughs> I don't know if that's how you say it Mouse it's 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 M A U S yeah Mouse 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 <laughs> so like just the idea of casting the cats as Nazi oppressors was in that particular graphic novel by Art Spiegelman uh so I I mean I I guess you can certainly view that especially since we have Jewish Russian mice here yeah <laughs> You know, I think they are kind of adopting that idea to, you know, apply to the film and it doesn't bother me. I don't think it's something that necessarily needed a lawsuit or anything against it. I mean, people borrow from other people all the time, but it was just interesting to find that out uh, doing research for this movie because I was like, oh, yeah, I guess there is a parallel there. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Because, yeah. I mean, obviously I could see the whole, you know, idea of, you know, gentrification and immigration and just the struggles that people have to find their place in a whole new country and a new environment. Uh, all that's there and kind of beautiful for, you know, even young kids to sort of think about at a young age, you know, think these are things that, you know, at age eight, I wasn't necessarily thinking about until I saw a movie like this. And that's what I really appreciate about, about Don Bluth, like introducing uh, ideas that you certainly become hyper aware of as an adult, but they're sort of like implanted in you at a young age yeah. to where now you think of the world differently. Um, as a result of seeing something that's you, you normally walk into is just pure entertainment, right? And now there's a whole other layer to the story that resonates very strongly, and I'm I'm and like it did for Ryan. I think it's kind of a, a you know a special film in that regard. It's not just like hey, this is so cool and fun, and look at all the you know look at all the characters being wacky. You know, there's yeah. a whole lot more going on underneath the surface. Well, as Go ahead, oh, go Ryan. ahead. No, go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> As we were going into this, I had no idea that th there was more past Fievel Goes West. Uh, while reading on this, I found out there was a TV show called Fievel's American Tales, and then two oh. more direct-to-video movies. Oh, yeah. One called The Treasure of Manhattan Island, and one called The Mystery of the Night Monster. I kind of want to seek those out. I'm sure they're nowhere near as good as the first two, but... Sure, sure. I mean, I love this universe. Yeah. Well, no, I'd, I'd happily go back to it for sure. And, and I just love this little tidbit, which I didn't know about. This is talking about Don Bluth. His maternal grandfather was Ray Pratt from the Pratt family, whose own father, Helaman Pratt, was an early leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as well <laughs> as the great-grandfather of Mitt Romney. Yep. <laughs> wow. So Don Bluth is, in with, is, is related to the Romneys. I love Mind that. Mind blown. Love it. Love it. But no, this is like... <laughs> I think part of it with Don Bluth and, and what's, I mean, we've talked about what's great about this film. If there's one negative thing that this film brought about, they peaked so early. Mm. And like, to me, this is where they peak. I think some people will argue that and, and say, maybe they peaked in the next film. I think they peaked here. And I think, they were able to keep that up for a couple of films, but then it got really hard. And I think when you peak this early, that becomes really, really tricky about how do you keep this momentum going? How do you keep this machine going? So I let's I, I want to keep that in mind as we discuss these next few films, because there is going to be a moment where we see a drop off. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I guess part of me knew that was going to happen just based on you know, the history of film and animation and things I've heard from people who are very um, like dedicated to keeping up with animation and know the history of it and everything. And they would just tell me, well, I know you're covering Don Bluth, but uh, it's not, it's not all uphill, you know, from a certain point, it, you, you sort of have to prepare yourself for some lesser work along the way. And I'm like, that's most filmographies though. Oh, you know? sure. Oh, sure. sure. Not every film could be a masterpiece. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg present a Don Bluth film, the land before time. Long ago, when the earth was new, five friends lost and alone. took an incredible journey. You want to go with me? Yeah! 
through a land of wonder and a land of danger. I hope he doesn't eat any of you. Although the next one, I will say, is again, pretty close. You know, I don't think it's as strong as an American tale, but man, just, uh, just watching this the other day again, I was just so in awe of it. Uh, and just yeah. the, one of the saddest <laughs> movies too, in yep. this side of grave of the fireflies, just because like within the first few minutes, we're just seeing like, you know, this in, incredible fantastical world just on the brink of destruction and subject to famines and earthquakes and just, uh, a lack of food and this poor little, you know, dinosaur called Littlefoot. Oh, I forgot to talk to mention the name of the movie. Uh, <laughs> we're talking, yeah. of course, about his next film, The Land Before Time. Yes. Wow. Uh, I did see this um, around the same time uh, this came out. And I don't know if I just this might have been one I caught up with on VHS because this is when those crazy Disney clamshell boxes or not Disney, but just I remember collecting a whole bunch of those at the time when it came out. And this was just really profoundly beautiful to me. And I loved I loved Littlefoot. And I loved just, uh, again, another journey that the one thing you can think about when you think of all, uh, the majority of Don Bluth's films is this idea of finding a sense of home and you know, a, a sense of connection with your community, your surrounding community, whether they're a different species or, than you or not. It's just a matter of feeling connected either in a familial sense or just that idea of where am I going to, you know, call home. And Littlefoot here is just basically going on a journey to uh, find a particular place in that his mother, you know, said, Hey, go here. You'll be happy. This is where you'll, you belong. But of course, in the tradition of something like Bambi, oof, the mother passes away uh, suddenly, and you know Niagara Falls for me. <laughs> you know when that happens, uh, and yeah, just like the idea of like him carrying around this leaf. Really, I, I mean, it's not something that I think affected me when I was a kid, but now it does tremendously. It's like all of his trauma is wrapped into this leaf. And he's carrying it around with him. Um, and of course, there's a lot, there's big laughs along the way, you know, just a, a lot of great interactions. But those, those T Rexes, man, they are scary. They just, they're intense. I but, think you, know, you may, I think you mean uh, sharp, sharp tooths. Sharp tooths. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But no, this is a haunting, beautiful story that it really resonated with me with some, with some deep emotions throughout. And, it, you know, it's bold for a children's film to go this dark at that time. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of merchandising tie-ins. There's a lot of success with this story overall. And there's a lot of sequels. As we, 13 to be. We're going to discuss every single one, correct? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Only the ones Don Bluth directed. So just this one. So you're going to do the uh, Land Before Time Incinerator episode, I imagine. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, we're almost there. We got 14 total. We're almost there. Damn. Um, yeah, this film, I mean, when I say that American Tell is my favorite, and it is, this is very close behind. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember seeing this film in the theaters. I remember, like, this was a big film when it came out. And, like, it did, re it did really, really well. And, um, 
which is in hindsight is really when you watch it now, I mean, it still holds up remarkably well, but it is so dark and so sad and melancholy. And there's actually, I, you know, this, this film actually has, has kind of a place in the queer community because it really is kind of a, a film about finding your chosen family. Yeah. To a large degree. Like that's a lot about what this film is. And so much of the success of this film is dependent on Pat Engel, who's the narrator of this film. Oh yeah. And just that almost like Burl Ives quality to that narration, which just adds this whole layer of resonance to it. Mm-hmm. And like is so impactful and is so sad and so warm when it needs to be. And like, you know, this is a 69 minute movie. Like it is so lean and mean, but it never, you don't, you never watch this film and feel like you've been shortchanged or that like it is exactly the amount of time this story needs to unfold. And I wish more films would take that approach and realize that you don't have to be 90 minutes to tell a fucking story. Um, and uh, yeah. Oh God. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film. And you know, again, another film that's teaching kids very important life lessons that a lot of films don't. And, uh, but also making it very accessible for them. I mean, which kid did I know who wasn't obsessed with Ducky? I don't oh. know. I was obsessed <laughs> with Ducky. Yeah, I was obsessed with Ducky. And um, yeah, I just, yeah, man, this is, this is, this is a really special film. While I think American Tale is his masterpiece, like this is the one that I would probably show to my kids first. Yeah, I, I would agree with that completely. It's, and it's just surprising to, to experience, you know, Littlefoot's self doubt and just yeah. intense grief at times. It's just, Oh, and yeah, and, and, the, and that moment with the with the bird giving him the cherry, like there's just yeah. so many things throughout this movie. I'm just like, oh man, it just it does completely warm your heart, and yet it has you know a, a fun character like Ducky too. <laughs> so oh, and don't and don't forget that James Horner score, which yes, is gorgeous, an all timer. It's yeah. so good, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now James Horner's contributions throughout are are really strong. They really are. Ryan, what do you think? Uh, I love this one. I, I I think this was my favorite one as a child, primarily because I was obsessed with dinosaurs, and this is the perfect entry point. Um, not only that, is it feels like the most adolescent of the films to me in mm. regards to the, uh, especially like naming, you know, Sharptooth and Littlefoot and all those things that are what a child would look at something and say, oh, this is a physical feature, so I'm going to change the name to that. And uh, beyond that, just the morality tales that are woven into like every other scene in this movie, the, I, I mean, the, the mother dying and hearing, let your heart guide you. It whispers. So listen closely uh. was mind blowing just as an adult, seeing that again and going, wow. Yeah. I probably should have continued to listen to that when I was younger. And it, it's just a beautiful movie. It's, it's not my top, but man, there's so much in this animation style that I took for granted as a child. And this has been an incredible exercise. So in the middle of this, I want to say thank you for allowing us to focus on this. Cause I oh, yeah. all- I'm, I'm grateful for the both of you to have chosen this because again, we don't, I mean, we've covered Bakshi and Miyazaki. I think that might be it in terms of animated directors. There might be yeah. one I'm not thinking about, but I mean, that makes sense to cover those too. But, and again, like Miyazaki, I I'm, completely overwhelmed by a lot of his work in that in terms of you know being emotionally moved but here you know especially with his early work i've i felt a similar vibe and, and it's just funny to, to have read too that 
I didn't confirm this, but somebody said that Don Bluth wasn't a Miyazaki fan, like sort of said, uh, uh-uh, uh, kind of a poser. And I'm like, uh, I don't know about that, sir. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not, that's not a take to stand on. Frankly. No. <laughs> um, not at all. Um, but yeah, it's just funny to hear that. I mean, I didn't again, confirm it in the actual interview, but somebody said that and I was just like, uh, I hope you don't really feel that way, dude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, clearly this is, Clearly, this is Don Bluth trying to remake Bambi. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, he puts his own spin on it. It, it is, they're very different films, even though they're very similar in terms thematically, but they're very different films. And um, and I'll be honest with you, the death scene in this gets me more than the death scene in Bambi. I would say you might be, I think you're right. I mean, again, I haven't watched Bambi in a while. Yeah, and I love Bambi. I think Bambi's sure. a masterpiece, but like, this one, this one gets me. Like, it really, it just, I watched this, about three years ago, I rented a cabin for my birthday, and my me and my friends went, and they had just these random assortment of VHS tapes, and I was like, they were like, and, so, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna pick two films for us to watch because it's my birthday and I can do what the fuck I want, Aww. and so I picked Twister <laughs> and The Land Before Time, and there were sp- several people there who had never seen The Land Before Time, and by the time it was over, it was just a couch full of weeping. <laughs> it was just weeping all over across the couch. I was like, this film still packs a punch even in 2020. Well, at the time, 2019, I think. Yeah. And and once he gets to the great Valley, I'm just like, yay. <laughs> you oh know? gosh. Of yeah. course. Just it's melts so your heart. That and the tree star. I'm just like, Oh yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I would just... argue that this has the most memorable scenes of any Don Bluth film. For me, I think you may be right. It has the, the the iconic scenes that when I think of Don Bluth, I think of like Sharp Tooth. I think of the I think of the you know Great Valley. I think like I I just think I just immediately go to this movie when I think of like my favorite scenes. Yeah, and oddly enough, I remember there was a Pizza Hut tie-in, and I can't. <laughs> oh, there absolutely was. I remember. <laughs> yes, there was. I remember it vividly. Yeah. Yeah. Around the same time I was doing the bookets for pizza hut, just so I can get a free personal pan pizza. Uh, that those, th- those were the days. Uh, there was also a McDonald's tie in with this film and you could actually buy this VHS tape at McDonald's. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. I do not that, remember. That. Oh yeah. That wow. was back when uh, McDonald's used to do these things. Like they would choose like four or five titles every year that you could buy at McDonald's like four or five VHS tapes <laughs> and it was different films. And I, rem- I remember vividly land before time being one. Mm. And, um, and I bought several of them that way. That's, that might've been how I bought land before time was at a McDonald's. Interesting. Well, they should have just gave them away with your happy meals. That would have been nice. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, That's asking well, that, a lot. that was the thing though. It was like, you could buy them outright or if you bought a happy meal, you got a discount on them. So that was the way they did it. Okay. And so if you bought yeah. a Happy Meal, you would only pay like $10 or something. And the film I was thinking about, um, and yeah, it was it was when Land Before Time came out. I think it was in November of 88, Oliver and Company, which that I also saw. Yeah. Which I also saw in the theater. And I think, again, it's it's hard to say which I liked more when I was a kid, but probably because I, I love cats. I might have liked Oliver and Company a little bit more at the time, but now. But Oliver and Company did not do well. It did not. It did no. not do well. I remember. I remember when I was a kid. I remember being really excited about Oliver and Company, and because I, I mean, it just looked so much fun. I remember being 
disappointed when I seen it as a, when I saw it as a kid. I was like six years old, saw Oliver Cummings. I remember being like actually disappointed, and that I don't know that that was my first example of being disappointed in a movie or like being like, oh, not all movies are awesome. It could be, uh, but uh, I'm sure I'd seen some bad movies before that. But that was I remember that being one where I was like, oh, not every film is great. It's okay to not love every film. But then, of course, yeah. now I watch Oliver and Company, and I think it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, it is. You know, yeah. and it's, you know, I guess you know Billy Joel is not a, a, a certain surefire box office draw. You know, I, mean, <laughs> no, I, I he, wish he's not. He, is, <laughs> he definitely, he definitely is not. Uh, Billy Joel is not. Oh well, but in, in, in this case, and I think Billy Ray, I want you to uh, introduce the next film because you are a dog guy. Clearly, how many dogs do you have? Uh, well, I have two. Uh, oh, okay, I thought you had like a like four for some reason. No, I, two's enough. That's yeah. I, I had a, I had an issue uh, this literally the day before yesterday. I experimented with getting a third dog. Aww. And so uh, we brought her in and it just didn't work out. Oh, I'm sorry. It didn't work out. And But what it did show me is that I don't need a third dog. Two yeah, is, I mean. Two is fine. Uh, two is more than I can handle already. A third dog would just turn my life into even more chaos. And we can't have that. So yeah, they, sh- they should have just named the band Two Dog Night. You know, instead. Oh, I see what you did there. I see yeah, what you that's, did. that's how it should be, because three is too many, you know. Um, well, yeah, I'm happy to talk about the next film. Uh, so this was this was the first film. Well, not the first film, but like after two really successful films with Amblimation, uh, this film is not with Amblin. So this is right. not this is not with them. It is actually an MGM film. And look, it's All Dogs Go to Heaven. And this is a film, until probably I was in my teenage years, I would have told you this was my favorite Don Bluth film. Until I got to that age. Um, It's about uh, an angel in canine form named Charlie who uh, ends up uh, finding a way back to Earth. He befriends this orphan who can speak to animals. And it's, I mean, look, if, if, if The Land Before Time is a film about chosen family... This is just as much a film about chosen family. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. 100%. And what's so interesting about this film is it was like, he basically was like, you know what, Burt Reynolds, get all your friends together <laughs> and let's make a movie. Because let's be clear, we got Burt Reynolds, Dom <laughs> DeLuise, Lonnie Anderson, Charles Nelson, White Riley, Vic, <laughs> T- Vic Tabak, like Melba Moore, Judith Barcy, like all these people that you would see at like the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater. Or on Hollywood in, Squares or yeah, something. Yeah, <laughs> or in this movie. And I got to tell you, it's so wonderful. Like to hear Burt Reynolds voice this character is kind of a thing of beauty. Because this was during a time when Burt Reynolds was kind of known for being a bit difficult. And shocker, Burt Reynolds was difficult. right? <laughs> and... He's having so much fun with this. And like, and, and it's like, this is another example of like, I can't imagine a single voice in this film cast with anybody else. It is so perfectly cast with the voices in this. And this one is a little more adult leaning. Yeah, I'd say so. It is gambling. And it's got little, (laughs) it's got gambling. It's like, it's definitely Don Bluth trying to aim to a slightly more adult audience. But it is still a kids' film, like. I, but it is the first film where you're like, maybe some parents won't show this to their kids right away, because it does deal with some things. It doesn't deal with anything that I think a kid can't handle personally. Uh, but, but it's it's also I think just the straight up funniest Don Bluth film. 
it, I think it is so funny and so fun. Like Dom DeLuise, I think this is the best use of Dom DeLuise across all of his appearances. I agree with that. Yeah. I think he's so great. I think Reynolds is having a blast. I, I love, uh, oh God, what's the name? Uh, uh, Charles Nelson Riley is just having a blast. Like, this is a really fun one. It, I, I watched it when I watched it recently for this again, as much as I still loved it. It doesn't have that emotional resonance as the previous couple of films do. Right. It, it doesn't quite have that. It makes up for it and just being straight up fun. And, uh, but it doesn't quite have that. And, you know, and, and, you know, and maybe this is the reason, but it didn't do as well at the box office either. Right. I mean, it did mm-hmm. okay. Like it did okay, but it didn't like blow it out the way the last couple of films did. But it did and, spark a franchise much like Land Before sure Time. Yeah. It sure did. And um, yeah, I just I'm a big fan of this one. If I'm ranking my Don Bluth films, this is probably fifth in my in my list, probably my fifth overall favorite. But um, I still really, really I have a soft spot for it because it was a big part of my childhood. Well, that makes sense. You know, and it's like the animation throughout all of his films are like, you know, pretty much 10 out of 10 while the stories are kind of more or less for me, like a six out of 10. And this one is, it's kind of messy (laughs) a little bit. I mean, I, I was, I was definitely surprised that we get to see our main character essentially being, you know, got a hit out on him and being murdered right in front of us. Yep. Like just getting that car, (laughs) like to go down the, uh, the, the uh, bridge there, the pier. And just like, we don't see obviously Charlie getting smashed and killed, but we know it's happening. Yeah. And that, was like, damn, you're getting your once again, Bluth, you're getting dark again, really hardcore here. And yet you're right. It does. It's aimed at kids. And certainly the, the little orphan girl is, you know, cute. And I think that's basically what kids would respond to the most is the idea of like, Oh, I got this cool dog and I can communicate with animals. And it's, that's really cool and great and wonderful. Um, I wasn't crazy about the songs except for like, maybe what's mine is yours. I think that's a good tune. And I, Burt Reynolds singing was was just a surprise. Uh, but like, no, you're right. The enthusiasm and humor here pretty much redeems anything that I kind of found like not as strong. Uh, it's just it's 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 just like kind of totally weird. Uh, and we'll get to certainly one that's even weirder. But uh, just like the the nightmare sequence where he like envisions himself going to hell. It's like, jeez. This well, is yeah. dark, <laughs> unexpected. Well, this film has actually a real life tragedy attached to it, also because Judith Barcy, who also voiced <sighs> Ducky in uh, Land right. Before Time, this was the last film she did before she was murdered. Right? You know, oh, her God. father, her father killed her, her mother, and himself when she was ten years old. I completely forgot. Oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, it was wow. like a big murder suicide, and so this was her final role. And um, so it's, it's got that sadness tangent to it as well, because you if you know what actually happened to her, it's so, so sad. And, um, and and yeah, like this is this is I mean, this is a intense film for kids. It can be an intense film for kids. It's like it's not shying away from showing you like harsh things and like the harshness of the real world in a lot of ways. And this almost feels like this was their direct answer to Oliver and Company. Mm that's yeah. what it feels like. It feels like, oh, you're going to do Oliver and Company. We're going to do All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah, and, it's like um, a gangster movie. In, yeah, <laughs> in a way, well, no, it is. It very much is like it's exactly that. It is a gangster movie. That is what this is. Yeah, and um, and you know, it's just, it, it just, yeah, it's it's a weird oddity, and and it's an oddity in Don Blue's filmography. 
in a certain way because it is almost an adult film. And, uh, and, and you almost have to wonder who was this for? Yeah, that's kind of, that was my response at the end really was just like, I enjoyed it, but wow. I, I, I would imagine this, this would be hard to market in terms. I mean, obviously you know how to market an animated film, but after watching it, I would think kids would be like, uh, that was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. But I also think, I also think the, the biggest mistake Bluth ever made in his career was leaving Amblin Mm. and universal. And I think, I, I think they just got each other on a fundamental level. And I know he was, he was not happy with some of the terms that they were imposing, but like, you know, there is, with the exception of one title, there is the direct correlation with sort of the downward trajectory of this company with when they left Amblin. Yeah. <laughs> with one exception, which we'll get to. Ryan, what did you think of all dogs go to heaven? I have been very quiet on this one because I really did not love my rewatch. Uh, I got a lot of questions from my kids just to keep everybody up to date (laughs) on that. Uh, That was expected while watching this one. But yeah, this was this was more of an awkward watch than I expected it to be, especially as an adult after deconverting from religion myself and looking back on how much I appreciated this as a kid and wondering how much of that was uh, pardon the pun here, but dogma that was thrust upon <laughs> me and watching this movie now is like, well, they're showing him like almost being gunned down with a Tommy gun. And there's, you know, these odd correlations of people gambling and w- knowing Don Bluth's history and his family's history. What part of that is ingrained in this that they're trying to tell anyways. Uh, it was obviously great animation. I, again, like you said, did not love the music in this, uh, I've never been a Burt Reynolds person overall. So his voice, I, I really thought we could have done I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I can't handle any Burt. We will not hear Ryan on the Burt Reynolds draft. Unfortunately, you, you will not. Uh, so yeah, that, that watching this again as an adult was like, yeah, of course that was him. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wonder why it was so much higher for me as a child, but uh, yeah, I'm glad to have seen it again. Well, and yeah, yeah the- and, you know, this also, I mean, talk about, like, the last film and, all, and Oliver and Company. This opened against Little Mermaid. Oh, God. And <laughs> that was the moment when Disney was officially back, right? Yeah. Right. And okay. so, and, and I think that, just like American Tail was a signifier to Disney that they had competition, I think this was a signifier to, to Don Blue's company that, oh, shit, maybe our run is not as yeah. insecure as we thought it was because because vo- little mermaid really changed the game for Disney. Disney doesn't look the way Disney looks today without the little mermaid. Oh, absolutely. It I, is. I, I, someone asked me really on a podcast once, like we were talking about Disney. And it was like, what is the one that was the most defining moment in the history of Disney? And I said, literally the little mermaid. <laughs> Disney is not what it is today without that film. It completely changed that studio, their trajectory everything like it just it 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 gave them a second life yeah and they had quite a run yeah you know after that with lion king and beauty and the beast being oh, an oscar nominated film you know Ala- I mean, aladdin yeah aladdin I mean, like, of course yeah. Mulan. like it lasted for a while yeah and that was a great period where i got excited about going to see disney films again yeah uh i i 
actually had watched just for a little extra research and fun, I'd never seen the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty before. And that was just interesting to learn about just how, yeah, they were kind of going under and blue stock was rising and then suddenly it switched in a way, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and you sort of get that sense of uh, competition, I guess uh, a little bit, but then, you know, he sort of goes off and does his own thing, but it gets kind of weird and messy in a way from this point forward for Bluth. Uh, not necessarily in a bad way. It's just, I got, I, I put this up. Let me see. Let me make sure. I wanted to read this insane plot synopsis for rock a doodle. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, could you look at that? Santa clear? Well, down into below, I was so alone. I never had no money, I had no honey to call my own. That's why treasure hunting, treasure hunting for my love. He's treasure hunting for his love. Well, I've been everywhere, searching high and low. But I ain't found no rainbow yet that has a pot of gold. So I keep treasure hunting, treasure hunting for my love. He's treasure hunting. Please. I watched this movie and was like, I need to be high right now because I can't even tell you exactly what's going on or like there's so many things going on in this and this is insane. So here is a um, paragraph plot synopsis of this insane movie called Rockadoodle. The story turns out to be a fairy tale being read to a young eight-year-old boy named Edmund by his mother. Their family's farm is in danger of being destroyed in the storm, and when his mother leaves to assist the rest of the family, Edmund calls for Chanticleer's return. However, he's instead greeted by the Duke, who is angered by Edmund's interference and uses his magical breath to transform Edmund into a kitten with the intent to devour him. Edmund is saved by a basset hound from Chanticleer's farm who struggles to tie his shoes and Edmund manages to drive away the Duke with a flashlight. Edmund then meets several other animals from the farm, all of whom are helping to find Chanticleer and apologize to him for their behavior. Edmund accompanies Patu, a cowardly magpie named Snipes, and the intellectual field mouse Peepers to the city, while the rest of the animals remain at Edmund's house. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> what an insane movie this turned out to be. Uh, and yet, I was really entertained by how weird and messy and how all over the place it went in a way like it does start off with 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 chanticleer as this rooster singing every morning to uh, you know get everybody up raise the sun and he's influenced a bit by elvis um is it glenn campbell right who does the songs for this (laughs) as an elvis imitator and Gosh, there's just such weird turns here because like, we go into the real world suddenly at one point on a real farm and we see this a little kind of obnoxious kid, <laughs> this eight year old who is, you know, uh, just being told this tale and suddenly gets to be a part of this tale and gets turned into a kitten, an animated kitten. Uh, so it, it has like that you know, Roger rabbit like integration going on with humans and animated characters. Uh, and yeah, and it just, uh, it all becomes about, uh, trying to get, uh, back to, you know, a sense of place and sense of home and 
have everybody come together and live happily ever after, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It was just such an insane movie that I kind of warmed up to it because it was so insane. Uh, and yet a lot the reputation for this, not good, not good at all. Like some it people terrible. Think, <laughs> yeah. Some people think it's awful and garbage and n- nothing re- redeemable about it. Um, I mean, I certainly don't think the, the kid, you know, as w- when he's not a kitten, not, not very good, but you know, he does great voice work when he's a kitten. And, you know, I could see like this sort of being, you know, a response to the success of Roger Rabbit and Bluth trying to be like, you know what, let me try and do my own weird take on that. But uh, it's not entirely successful and it's very messy, but I still found myself kind of into it. You know, just the songs were pretty good. Uh, I liked all the characters um, and it's just weird. What can I say? That's all. That's like, that's, that was my main takeaway from this one was like, gosh, this was a weird one, but I, I kind of like weird. So there you go. Rockadoodle. I'm giving it a thumbs up. <laughs> what do you think? I Ryan? Was- I was impressed with how much I liked this one again. Uh, I, for some reason as a child really loved the movies that went back and forth from uh, real life uh, to the animated world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just yesterday, Billy Ray and I were discussing uh, the wonderful, of course, the one of everybody's favorites, the, uh, uh, otherwise traumatizing, similar to some of Don Blue's films, uh, got to go with Roger Rabbit. Um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was instrumental in my life, but that oh, yeah, that's the pinnacle. There's also like the Page Master I loved as a child, and so watching this, I totally forgot that there was any real life part of this. Mm-hmm. And the movie started, and I was like, "Whoa, wait yeah, a minute!" That was my reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so not ready for it, but then to see how they they fumbled through some of the interactions between the animated world and the physical world was interesting because I don't think they got it quite right. Uh, but a lot of the animated world was so well done that mm-hmm. I just I, I was so confused how this is so forgotten. Uh, the, the characters are still great. Don Bluth still must hate owls, I guess, and <laughs> every, everything is still just so emotionally resonant, but also fits in a way where children and adults alike can be entertained throughout. There's no like dull point in this movie. It, no matter what, you're still emotionally enthralled for the entire runtime. I, I really, really enjoy this. It surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. I was surprised really quickly by the use of Ellen green, because we all yeah. know and love her from little shop of horrors, but she did a great job as Goldie. Um, and it's like such a distinctive voice. That I'm like, wait a minute, I got to stop and look this up because I know that voice. I know that voice. I've heard it before. And she was also great as the teacher in uh, pump up the volume. So I, I love Ellen green in this and Sandy Duncan as peepers. You know, there's, there is some really great voice work here for sure. Absolutely. It's, it's really well made. Yeah. Completely happy with all, all the casting of this, even Eddie Deason, I guess. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess. Uh. Not, not the best. And, uh, <laughs> it, there, there's always some, some unfortunate casting when you look back on some of these films, but why was yeah, this well, so hated? I wonder though, I mean, <laughs> were there people who are just like, this is, you know, not a good story or just like, I don't know why people were so against it. Maybe they're just like, this isn't, you know, uh, something that we can emotionally attach ourselves to, but it's just fun. I'd I love know. to know. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it is because to a large degree, like this isn't as emotionally grounded as the other films oh, are. No, oh no. Like it is it is it is honestly the kitchen sink. Now I will I will profess and say I love Rockadoodle. I loved it when it I loved it in 91. 
I still love it. I think it is messy and shaggy and yeah. weird, and it certainly doesn't all work, but I kind of love that about it. And again, I want to point out just the so, just the voice actors like Glenn Campbell. Like, what a great choice. Ellen Green, Eddie Deason, Sandy Duncan, like just Christopher she, Plummer, of course. Yeah, back Christopher Plummer is back here. And um, just like really, really being unique with the folks that he's choosing to do these voiceover. Like this film obviously was a bomb. It did not do well. Uh, it was the first film that Bluth had done on his own that had not made a profit, uh, which, you know, I think probably is why we continue to see the downward trajectory that we do. But I love this film. As a kid, this was just like everything I wanted. It was so wild and over the top. Yeah. You know, Wild and over the top can sometimes work in its favor, you know, and people, I don't know, were just not into that at the time, like because they were so used to things like the Little Mermaid or whatever, and just something a little more streamlined. Uh, I mean, like, I don't know, some people just kind of dismiss this entirely, but I don't know. I, I just think sometimes messy and shaggy can work. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Southland Tales, so, you oh, know, yeah. there's just weird things like that sometimes. I don't well, know. Work for me. Especially, I think. Uh, I think that. I think at this point, when this film came out, you know, Little Mermaid's out now. This is Beauty and the Beast year in '91. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, a film that would go on to be nominated for Best Picture. And I like. I think. I think culturally, what we wanted out of animated films had just changed. Yeah. And I think we were looking for something a little more classic, like, like you know, more like that classic Disney style. And this was not, we weren't, I, I almost think it was ahead of its time. I just don't think we were quite ready for this when it came out. And uh, and I don't know that we're still ready for Rockadoodle in 2023, but I'm glad it exists. I think if you, uh, if you just get some edibles and, and sit down and watch some Rockadoodle, you're going to have a good time. I oh, think. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a, it's a crazy ass little kid. It is. Film. It really is. But sometimes that just, I don't know, you could be in the right mood for it. Whereas uh, a couple of the others we're going to get to, I, I didn't see every one of these just because of, you know, the reputation for them. But either of you want to introduce the next film. I'm, I'm all for it. Cause uh, there's a couple here in the middle that I just sure. decided I'm going to skip over. But I mean, there's a couple of highly regarded films in the later nineties that uh, I'm happy to talk about for sure. I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about this next one. Cause I think this is honestly one of his most underrated films. Frankly. Oh, okay. Thumbelina. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so Thumbelina is his 90, 90 1994 film. He, he kind of obviously after All Dogs Go to Heaven and Rockadoodle, he's going back to a little more solid ground, which is like a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, right? Hmm. And um, and Thumbelina was always one of those titles like Rapunzel or something like that, where I always heard like, why hasn't Disney done this? And so, you know, I'm sure that had a part to play in it as well. And what does he do? Son of a bitch, Don Bluth. He casts as the voice of the lead character, yep. Jody Benson from Little Mermaid. Like, oh, yeah, no one friend. is going to tell me that is not just a straight up fuck you to Disney right there. <laughs> and um, I think this is actually a really lovely film. Hmm. You know, it's about, um, you know, it's about Thumbelina uh, and kind of <laughs> her journey. So let's be clear. It starts out, the story starts out very thin, as all Hans Christian Andersen stories are. They're all very thin on the page. So they really have to build this one out, but um, it is about kind of 
it's about grieving, but it's also about friendship. And like, I mean, all of his films are about friendship to some, some degree. Like we've talked about chosen family and stuff like that, but like, you know, it's about a, a little, like, I don't know how, I don't remember how many inches tall she is, but it's very small. And she's very concerned that she's never going to meet someone who, you know, she connects with. Uh, but then enter the uh, Prince of the Fairies, <laughs> played by Gary Imhoff. And uh, she eventually finds love, but then her love is stolen. And she has to go rescue her love, Prince Cornelius. And there are all sorts of these crazy, wacky animals that help her along the way. And, you know, I'll very quickly talk about the voice cast here. You've got Gilbert Gottfried, Carol Channing, John Hurt, Barbara Cook, Charo, Ooh. of all people. Like, it is a really stacked cast of, like, voice talent. And I think the animation is really beautiful here. And it's also a little bit wackier animation than we've seen from Don Bluth in the previous films. Like it's, it it's, it's almost like, it's almost like his animation is trying to recreate. Uh, uh, why am I going blank on the band from the Muppets? Mayhem, electric mayhem. Oh yeah. Electric mayhem. Like a lot of these characters look like they could be an electric mayhem. <laughs> They're so colorful and so wacky. And, um, you know, the film did not do well when it came out. It's his first time working with Warner brothers. Uh, it did not make back its production budget. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just find that there's something really lovely about this film and really sweet. And it's not on par with like his earlier work. It's certainly not on par with like what Disney was doing at the time. But I think this movie gets shat on a lot as being like part of this doldrums period. And I'm like, no, like, yeah, those films weren't as good as his other stuff. But there's some really redeeming stuff in there, I think, as well. Um, and and yeah, I just I like this film better than a lot of other people do. So well, then I will seek it out. I'd certainly love to hear John Hurt do a voice, an animated voice. And oh yeah, he uh, plays Mister he plays Mister Mole, and he's quite fun as Mister Mole. He is. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely curious about it. I mean, it's also from what I see here that it's one of his only writing credits. Don Bluth, like he wrote the script. Yeah, for this. yeah, he did write. He did write this. You know, in fairness to him, I would say the screenplay is not the strongest part of this film. Yeah, uh, I can see but that. But I don't want to throw it at him, but it is not the strongest part of this film. I think the animation is where this film really excels. But, um, yeah, I just hate it when I hear people, like, slander this film. Like, and, 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 you know, and, and it's like, just watch it. Just watch it. And, like, you'll be, you'll be, pl- you might not love it, but you'll be pleasantly surprised that it's not as bad as you thought it would be. <laughs> Did you get to see this one, Ryan? I did, and uh, I, I want to say the first thing. It was hilarious that Jim says either of us can introduce it. Billy Ray says this next title is underrated, and Jim goes, Thumbelina? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. it, it just goes to show that so many people have been against this film, and a lot of them have, have just plain never seen it. Uh, I do think that this is good and underrated, like Billy Ray said. Still nowhere near my favorite. I think that the animation is some of the best uh, throughout his entire catalog considering the type of things that he's drawing here. Uh, it was nice to see it take a little bit of a, what you could call a bold swing compared to some of his other films, because it is different from what he'd been doing. Uh, however, as we can see it, he probably should have kept a little more to what he knew. Uh, not, not the biggest fan of this movie, but I think this may be the best voice performances for many of his films. And uh, yeah, overall solid entry. Oh my well, then I'm, I'm slapping myself in the face right now for for skipping a couple of these. 
uh, coming up. But uh, that one in particular, when I see some of the voices there, I'm like, ah, yeah, I'll get to it though. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious nonetheless, just because when I hear something is loathed or kind of disregarded, I just always want to see why, sure, <laughs> you know, sure. I'm, whether I agree or not, I'm, I'm just always curious. I mean, that's a huge reason why sometimes when films get panned at festivals, I'm, st- I'm like, Oh, well, I'm still going to see it anyway. I don't care. <laughs> but yeah, I mean like the next two, I would imagine are geared towards the younger demographic for sure. When you have titles like a troll in central park and the Pe- pebble and the penguin, uh, Ryan, did you see either or both? I did. Uh, I will. I will go into Troll in Central Park because when I let my wife know, gosh, like three and a half months ago that we were going to be doing stuff on Don Bluth, she went, "Oh, Troll in Central Park! I can't wait to rewatch that one with you." And I said, Aww. "I've never seen it." And she was like, "Are you kidding me?" Uh, yeah. th- supposedly, this is a, a monumental, full, monumental film for her as a child. I had literally never heard of it. I got to be honest; it was just I not something yeah. that ever came across wow. my radar. Uh, it, it was an odd time, I guess. It came out in 94, the same year as Thumbelina. So maybe it was just overshadowed because I know I, I saw Thumbelina many times as a child, <laughs> just never this one. Uh, this one was interesting, to say the least. Uh, troll in Central Park is about a troll named Stanley who has a <laughs> magical green thumb that, depending on what he touches, can bring plants or greenery or flowers to life which, uh, as luck would have it, is uh, completely against the law in his home kingdom where he lives. And uh, as uh, somebody else is living in the regular world and a child tumbles down and Stanley's sort of on the outs because he's hiding from his green thumb attributes in this kingdom, they start interacting with each other. And this movie is freaking weird. Uh, out of oh, all of his films... rock doodle territory again, kind of? <laughs> I, I felt that this movie was much weirder than Rockadoodle. Ooh, oh boy. Uh, uh, plot points are just completely thrown against the wall and seeing what sticks in many cases of this. Uh, I think that the animation was probably a little hurried, uh, just mm-hmm. speculating based on the fact that both of those movies came out in 94. I, I think that this is, uh, it's still good and, and very good in some scenes, but in others, you could tell he's just not trying new things like he generally does in a lot of his movies. And I, yeah, overall, uh, this was probably close to bottom of the list for me, but I still think it's absolutely worth seeing. It seems Letterboxd uh, would agree that it's bottom of the list. Um, you, you you gave it three stars, which is a very nice and kind review compared to a lot of the others I'm seeing here. I'm like, ooh, well, yeah. But that's the thing. I still kind of love all of these movies, but when you're the worst entry into a great filmmaker's career, it, it can still be very good. I'm going to I'm going to argue I don't think it's the worst. We're about to talk about the worst. Mm-hmm. Um but it is I do think what you said it, it suffers from like I don't know what in what world they thought releasing two films in the same year was a good idea. Um right. And this one clearly got the short shrift, right? Like Warner Brothers was not as confident in this one as they were Thumbelina, which obviously Thumbelina didn't do great either. But this one is compare. I mean, this one is by far the least successful of all of Don Blue's films. And um, what I love about this film, I love that Dom DeLuise gets a lead vocal here. Oh, I think that's, that's I think yeah. that's really great. I think adding Cloris Leachman, Jonathan Price, and Haley Mills, it was a great idea. I think 
they're really terrific here. Like again, talking about the voice work and, um, but yeah, like this is not a film. This is not one that has ever stuck with me in any meaningful way. I, I, there are things I like about it. There are certainly things to appreciate. And I do think there are some points where the animation is really great, but then there are some points where it feels like it's not doing very much. And the story is kind of all over the place. Um, I just, I don't feel a lot of confidence in this film from anybody involved. This film's, this film feels like everybody involved knew that they were working on something that didn't quite have what the other films had. And it feels that way to me. Well said. That's the kind of impression I get. And I kind of went, mm, I don't know if I'll prioritize a couple of these. And that would also include the pebble and the penguin, which I'm guessing could be the worst is that true, Billy Ray? <laughs> I, for in my mind, it is it is the worst. I mean, even with I mean, like I see Tim Curry, and I'm like, oh, I love everything he does. So I'm I'm still curious to to, to catch up with it. No, you know, there's but. there's things about it to enjoy. It's not like it's a totally miserable experience. I just think creatively. I mean, it's so bad that like I mean, they essentially took their names off of it. Oh, like yeah, I, I mean, I that, they yeah. essentially took their names off this film, and like this is this is when they're back with MGM, um, and I, I don't know. There's just something missing. It doesn't have the emotional resonance. The animation is not. It's not as attractive as his other films are, and even like the voice work is is fine, right? Because you get Martin Short, you get Jim Belushi, you get Tim Curry. Like, but I think part of it is is like. It's mo- it's a lot of new voices and not a lot of the old connective voices that always make these films sing. Like some of them are back, right? Like like Pat Music is back. Um, oh God, I'm missing one who's back as well. Um, but for the most part, it's a pretty brand new voice cast, and hmm. and I think that adds to it too, where it just doesn't feel like it has that same Bluth magic to me as the other films do. I'm interested to see what Ryan thinks about this one. I remembered almost nothing about this going into it, knowing that I'd seen it a couple times as a kid. Uh, but I really only walked away going, I miss Tim Curry. Um, Aww, sure. He is somehow still the best part of this movie, in my opinion. Um, I, I think that it was fun to see a different setting for one of Blue's movies, but I completely agree with Billy Ray. I don't think he got what they were animating towards. And because of that, it was... It felt like they this was still a first draft, perhaps, or like they needed to add further texturing to some yeah. of this because it was. Uh, it, it, I don't think it was actually rushed. I just don't. I think they were out of their element. And um, w- with that being said, it feels lacking, and it's it's not even necessarily ugly. It just feels like th- this was you know one point three, and we were should have been delivered one point six. Well, and think about it. Like they're working on Thumbelina, Troll in Central Park, and Pebble and Penguin at the same time. Yeah, right. that's nuts. That's, that these three films are happening at the exact same time, and like one film is going to have to get the short shrift. Overall, it's going to have to. And like clearly, in my mind, Thumbelina was the priority. Pebble and the Penguin was the least priority, and Troll in the Park got lost in the middle. And 100%. they all three suffered because of it. Like they all three suffered. And probably the, uh, just looking back on the filmography, they reasonably probably did that is because they had no film that really catered to little girls. No, mm. no. Well, and then boy, did they course correct? They sure <laughs> did. And I'm ready to bounce back and be like, Hey, 
Don Bluth, I still love you. In the dark of the night, I was tossing and turning. And the nightmare I had was as bad as can be. It scared me out of my wits. A corpse falling to bits. Then I opened my eyes and the nightmare was me. I was once the most mystical man in all Russia. When the royals betrayed me, they made a mistake. My curse made each of them pay. But one little girl got away. Little Anya, beware, Rasputin's away. Yep. Yeah, because Anastasia, I, I, this was around the time I started working at a video store. So of course, we get like you know thirty, forty copies of this movie to come in for, for, for all the kids and families to check out. And of course, I did too because I was curious and I'd watched pretty much anything and everything at that time. And back then, I was like, I really, really, really like this movie quite a bit. I mean, it's ex- exactly it plays out exactly how you would expect, but at the same time. The voice work is strong. The animation is stunning. And it just, it did feel like, again, you know, we use this expression a lot. And in some cases, I'm a little tired of it, but it felt like a return to form. It felt like Don Bluth is back where he belongs and telling stories that do have emotional resonance and, and a deeper meaning. But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's based on the legend of the Grand Duchess Anastasia, uh, who has amnesia at the age of 18 and is leaving her orphanage and is of course on the hunt to find her real family. And it's about a journey again. Uh, and along the way she meets uh, Dimitri voiced by John Cusack and Vlad from uh, played by Kelsey Grammer. So you got some great talent here, but then ladies and gentlemen, the great Christopher Lloyd as the villain, that sealed the deal. You know, once I heard that voice, I'm like, I think I'm going to like this quite a bit because going back to, you know, my love of back to the future. And of course, who framed Roger rabbit. I just, uh, you know, he's a very distinguishable voice and a very memorable one at that. But anytime like Christopher Lloyd pops up, I'm just happy. Like there's an instant like dopamine rush (laughs) from anything he gets involved with, even if it's just this, you know, simple voice work here, but the story is, you know, again, it's a fairy tale essentially. And it kind of plays out like a, like a typical Disney um, tale. And yet I, I got involved in it. I got moved by it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to like, you know, a Pygmalion kind of tale more or less, but yeah, I just, you know, it could have been again, like a response to let's do our own sort of beauty and the beast romantic tale, but there's a sense of like a grounded realism here and just the animation is gorgeous. So I, uh, I really loved Anastasia. I was really impressed and surprised after like kind of shrugging a couple of things off or finding lesser minor work. This one really holds up beautifully. And I would, I would recommend it to any kid to watch today. I'm so happy this film exists because after that string of like disappointments, like it's so amazing for someone that I respect so much like Don Bluth to see them get actually the respect they deserve on a film. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, this film was nominated for two Oscars. It is the best, uh, best performing Don Bluth film ever. It did very well at the box office. and Rightfully so. And talking about the voice cast, we didn't even get into Hank Azaria, Angela. Oh, Lansbury, yeah. Hank Azaria Peters, Bartok, yeah. Andrea Martin, uh, Deborah Mooney, Victoria Clark, Billy Porter, J.K. Simmons. Like, my God. Like, it That's just. Dreamcast. <laughs> it just goes down the road. goes down the road. And, like, this definitely feels like a more mature Don Bluth film. Mm-hmm. 
It feels like he's abandoned all of the goofiness from the previous films. He's with the exception of a few things like bar talk and things like that. There's sure still, the goofiness is still there, but th- those are in Disney movies too. And so, but this is like, this is an adult Don Bluth movie for kids. Yeah. And it's probably the most stunning animation he ever did. Mm-hmm. Like the animation is really stunning here. And um, to see this, to know this film did so well and that he was able to get such a later career like boost like this, it just makes me really happy. And, and it is a, it's a really, really fine film. It's definitely top five Bluth for me. Um, I think some people would say it's their favorite Bluth and I totally understand that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think this was a real step up for him and I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. And the songs are, are really strong throughout too. Like the dark of the night is really yeah. good. And yeah, th- there's just, it just all like, again, like all the elements kind of come together beautifully here in a way that, uh, you know, like some of his lesser work, I just kind of roll my eyes and I didn't at all throughout this yeah. entire movie. Yeah. I'm guessing Ryan, you feel similarly. Yes. I uh, am not going to surprise anybody here watching this. This, in my opinion, is the masterpiece out of the filmography. Um, Somehow my kids felt exactly the same, which surprised the hell out of me. Uh, I was blown away watching this again. This was a big staple in my house when I was younger, but um, really, uh, really attached myself to Christopher Lloyd this time after being attached to Hank Azaria, like every other child back then when it came out. Uh, just the one-two punch of those two made this movie fun in a fairly dark story overall. Uh, but th- the big thing here, the animation is the most captivating animation I've seen in a couple years. Uh, I don't remember it being done this well. The big thing, like the train wreck that they're uh, about to go over the bridge, that was a big highlight for me and probably a good time for me to point out that I was blown away going through this filmography, watching the way that they animate in a 3D world that Mm. Disney never did. Obviously, Disney always had their mats and Don Bluth did it in such a way where you're looking at a subject in the middle of this drawing, but then he pans around it in an animated way nobody else was doing it like that and it makes this all feel so much more tangible and textured and uh, genuinely almost 3d and it's impressive mostly in this movie he does it so many times in this that i could not uh, help but be in complete awe while watching this um there there are scenes like in the empty cathedral that they're in as they're singing and trying to get to know each other that was just expansive in a way that disney has tried before in films and because of the mats that they draw against it just doesn't have that same depth and this shows why don bluth is amazing i loved literally everything in this movie and shocked and blown away that uh the secret in him was not my number one while going through all of these i think this is easily my favorite of every single thing he's touched oh that's so great to hear you know because again like later in the career i just assumed uh oh nothing's gonna you know redeem him or something it's just gonna get like uh get worse as it goes along and that's not the case at all there's just a really special you know story here that manages to work in ways that I think are universal. Like I think anybody can watch this and just get, you know, hooked into the story. And Meg Ryan's not somebody I normally thought of as like, you know, a a memorable animated voice, but she does great work here. She really does. You know, well, the the same with John Cusack, like you don't, yeah, yeah, that's true, but he's great here. He's perfect. And like, that's what I mean with like finding these like voice actors that you wouldn't think of, but like, he's great at that. Like Bluth has always been great at that. 
And then, of course, when you've got like colorful people like Kelsey Grammer, Christopher Lloyd, Hank Azaria, Angela Lansbury filling it in, like, my God, you're setting yourself up for success. For sure. So everybody, if you're listening to this, go back and watch Anastasia. Absolutely. Go watch Anastasia. Yeah. I don't know if I would say the same about the last film we're going to talk about here, but I think. <laughs> Wait, we're not talking we ha- about Bartok the Magnificent. Oh, 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 yeah. I guess if you. Yeah. Let's talk about Bartok the Magnificent because it is a spinoff, essentially. It is. And it's not as it's not awful. Like it is. It is. It is not needed. It is an unnecessary <laughs> film, but it is. It is. Uh, well, you got Hank Azaria. Fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. You got Hank Azaria, Kelsey Grammer, Catherine O'Hara, Tim Curry's back, Jennifer Tilly, French Stewart, Diedrich Bader, the late great and my friend Glenn Shaddix. Uh, and so, like, just a, a really great voice cast. The movie's fine. It's not bad. It's worth a watch if you like Anastasia. But it's not, like, you know, it's direct to video for a reason. Oh, you got a great, great cast. So it, it, that makes complete sense. And gosh, you know, Jennifer Tilly probably should just do a lot of voices in general. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it did. I think it did really well on video, though. So I think it did well for him on on video rental. Yeah. And the uh, tie in was through IHOP back in 99, apparently. Yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> as you do. OK, sorry. I didn't mean to detract from a film that I'm very excited to talk about. Oh, boy. Well, Again, stunning to look at. We're talking about Titan AE, which effectively shut down Fox Animation Studios. And basically killed Don Bluth's directing career. 100%. Yeah. Hasn't, hasn't made anything since. Nope. So, and, uh, and I think that's, <sighs> a, I personally think that's a little unfair. So I'll say this. I saw this in theaters. Um, I... I liked it when I first saw it. Got to, I was a fan of this film when it came out. Um, I had the soundtrack. I still think there are some bangers. Oh, the, yeah. I think there are still some great. bangers on that soundtrack. I still like this film. I still think this is an underrated film. I think it's problematic. I think it's got problems. It, it's messy. I think he's biting off a little more than he can chew here. And it's a bummer that he, you know, he had all that success with Anastasia he can probably do whatever he wants to do. And it breaks my heart that this is what he does. And it basically tanks his career because I do think this film was a, a bit ahead of its time. I think it was about 10 years away from being what it needed to be. Mm. If he had just had the patience to like sit on it and then go back to it. Um, because I think it's a fun movie. I think it's an action packed movie. I think the voice work is pretty great. You know, John Leguizamo, Nathan Lange, Janine Garofalo, Ron Perlman, Tone Loke. Like, again, interesting choices for voice cast here. No doubt about that. Yeah. Matt Damon is as bland as bland can be. I would agree. Bill Pullman. (laughs) Bill Pullman is as bland as bland can be. When we talk about voice actors that don't need to do voice acting, Matt Damon and Bill Pullman are about at the top of that list. Like, I don't need to hear Bill Pullman do a voice in an animated film. I'm sorry. Like, he's just not bringing enough to the table there. And so, uh, but I think visually this film is spectacular. I like what they were trying to do. I just think it was ahead of its time. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Of I haven't even, I'm sorry, I haven't even talked about what this movie is even about yet. Uh, it basically, Matt Damon plays this guy who is uh, trying to find this hidden Earth ship. Uh, before these uh, these nasty aliens 
uh, it comes so he can uh, basically he's trying to keep mankind alive. He, right. That way mankind doesn't succumb to the Borg, even though it's not the Borg. Uh, <laughs> I, it's like I, I think the story is actually maybe too simple for the animation style. That might be part of it, too. But um, yeah, I, I've, de- I've defended this film for years, so I'm ready to hear if I have to defend it against y'all. Well, I. Mm, it's a, <laughs> it's interesting to see the co-writers on the script for oh, sure. Yeah. Joss Whedon and John August. Yep. Very interesting uh, collaborations here going on. I, uh, I'm mixed on it. I didn't despise it by any stretch. I mean, it seems like it was pretty much dismissed and loathed with the exception of Ebert. Ebert really gave this a high rating from what I can tell. Yep. Uh, and I wouldn't call the story rousing the way he did, but it does have lush galactic visuals, which I, I think it, it's, it's just interesting to think of him. Yeah. Embracing, a whole new era of technology with using computer generated images uh, combined with his traditional, you know, hand-drawn animation style that we, you know, all known and loved. So it's just, I wonder if it was overwhelming for him uh, to really have this story come to life in the way that I wish it could have, because again, it's, it's a great setup. You know, you see, the earth it basically explode and then you kind of wonder well what's going to what's going to happen from there like he gets separated from his dad and then yeah it sort of becomes what you would expect in this sort of sci-fi story uh not unlike a star trek film or something along those lines and again story-wise not the strongest uh some of the voice voice work like you mentioned billy ray i'm not too crazy about i think drew barrymore does a good job uh, but others, not so much. And I just didn't get, you know, as enthused or invested, even though I can admit it's got a killer climax. There's a yeah. lot to appreciate in terms of some of these action sequences. He really does kind of go out of his comfort zone for better or worse. And I'm square in the middle on this film because like sometimes like some of the song choices, I'm like, wow, that's bold and cool and interesting and certainly like you know, practically going down the route of Lincoln Park or something for some of these songs, I mean, like emo stuff. I was just who like, would have thought? Who would have thought a Don Blue film would have songs by Power, Power Man, Man Five Thousand, yeah. Jamiroquai, <laughs> and Luscious Jackson? Like that was such a surprise, and in the and, and in a good way for me, yeah, for sure. And it's a great score. Uh, yeah, like just most of the elements, you know, and choices here are strong. They work pretty well but again like i mostly shrugged it off when it was over it wasn't something that's going to stick with me long term but i appreciate it and i'm glad i watched it so i mean look he was there for the birth of fox animation studios and he was there (laughs) for the death of it so it seems i guess very appropriate yeah exactly Ryan, what did you think of Titan AE, the infamous Titan AE? Well, just like stated earlier, this was a first-time watch for me. Uh, I don't know how, again, that I ever missed this. I, I was in my teenager years, so maybe I was just uh, a little too cool for school for this one. Same here, um, yeah. 
I, I feel like if I would have saw this, I might have enjoyed sci-fi earlier than I did. Cause I've never, even now sci-fi is fairly low on my list of must seek out type of films, but I, I could have seen this hitting me when I was 14 or 15. Uh, but for some reason I, it just didn't. Uh, this was very middle of the road for me. I think the soundtrack while the, the music's good, uh, holy hell, was that weird to see in this movie? Um, I, I think that the voice work is probably the worst of all of his films on this. And yeah. I was a, a little not in love with the computer animation that was used here. I, I, I do think it was ahead of its time. And that's probably the main problem here. If they had seen a couple other entries from other studios before this, I think they probably could have done a much better job with it. I'm glad it exists. I'm glad that we can look back on it fondly. I wish he would come out with one or two others since then and uh, sort of cleanse his palate a little bit. He currently is attached to a movie coming out. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever happen. He's been attached for two years on this dragon's lair, the movie. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. That it's that's been, been in the works for a long time. I supposedly. know Ryan Reynolds has been attached to that for like a decade. <laughs> um, I would love to see it come out, though. I mean, I would oh, love, of course, to, I would love to see him get one more, like just what he's eighty six now. He ain't got long left, so like, give the dude one more go. I mean, and that said, like, uh, I don't know if there are Scissor Sisters fans here, but he did do the animation for their music video "Mary," which is really awesome. Oh, that's right! It's incredible. It's yeah. really awesome. And so, I forgot. Yeah. yeah, so he's still got gas in the tank. So, like, let the guy do the Dragon Lair movie. I mean, it's such a personal t- property for him. I imagine he'll do something fun with it. And maybe he's learned a lot from Titan AE because yeah. that was such a monumental disaster. Like, I have to think he's learned from that. So I want to see him get one more shot at bat. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the pandemic might have put Dragon's Lair on hold for yeah. a bit. Yeah. But um, I, I I would love to see him bounce back and do something you know remarkable again. And you know he does have a new animation studio simply called Don Blue Studios out there in the world. So you know even if he's just producing work for the future for other animators, that's great in and of itself. But I I want to see him do something else. Before yeah, I, I really do. I because I, I I like Titan AE. I I don't dislike it like a lot of people do. But it is a, it is a shame that that's what. Yeah. He, you know, he's going out with, and just a plug too, if you have not read his autobiography somewhere out there in my animated life, it's fantastic. I should. No, it is I mean, I, Not that I'm more of a book. fan than ever. I think I will. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really good. I think it gives you an even deeper appreciation for Don Bluth and about what his motivations were and like just his story of where he came from and how he even got into animation is so fascinating. So I would really recommend that book for folks. It's, it's really special. Okay, that's great. Uh, I, yeah, and sort of in like, you know, in, in, in summation, I really do think he had a fascinating career within the field of animation. You know, I mean, he left behind a legacy to, to be sure. And even if it's flawed, it's still special. Like I, there, each film, I think, has something memorable or at least weird and, you know, like kind yeah. of out there that you may not have seen before in an animated movie or just some of the dark paths that he took in a lot of these stories were really shocking and surprising. And, but throughout all the films I watched, there is an exceptional artistic quality and a timelessness to a lot of these, especially the early films. I, I, I felt 
young again, you know, and that's yeah. kind of the goal of going back to watch films aimed towards kids is that you want to feel that sense of awe and wonder that you did when you were a kid. And I think he, uh, you know, accomplished that. And I'm glad we got to cover him because most people just, yeah, choose non-animated <laughs> directors to, to focus on. But this was a, a, a kind of a joy, even if I wasn't over the moon about every single title. And I also didn't expect that necessarily. It's, you know, it's not the run that Pixar has had over the years, but it's still, you know, incredible to just see what he accomplished and the fact that he was so unique as an animator. Uh, this was great. I'm really glad. I would finally, I would throw a final plug in there as well, too, because I had the fortune. I was in Arizona um, and uh, I was able to go. He runs a theater company in Arizona. It's called the oh. Don Bluth Front Row Theater. And because uh, it, it started out in the 90s, he would do these youth productions in his like his living room. And the, he ended up starting a theater. It's still there. They still do good work. I saw it. I was it was several years ago, probably 2013 or 2014 when I went. And uh, it's a really lovely place. And I didn't get to see Don Bluth. He wasn't there. But he still has is very hands on with that theater and does a lot mm. of work for them. And like that's probably what he's been doing, you know, in the spare time when he's not been directing movies the last, you know, 23 years he's been doing theater so he's been working that's good to hear because i want him to keep working for sure still working with kids yay so we end the show here with our top three picks from the director uh i'll happily go first i mean it's kind of a (laughs) predictable list even though i i would love to put anastasia in the top three my top three are the land before time number two is the secret of nim and number one, an American tale. Although, like I said, number one and two are pretty neck and neck. You know, it's hard for me to ultimately say this is the top number one pick for me because I love them both pretty much equally. So that's my top three. Ryan, what are your top three? Don Happily. Knows. Number three, I'm going to go with The Secret of Nim. I think that this is a revelation for me. I don't, again not sure how I ever missed this. Number two was an American tale hit harder than ever. And number one, I I implore anybody that has not seen it since to go back and revisit Anastasia because it is magical. Agreed. And uh, as a real quick plug, like Billy Ray did, I know we mentioned it slightly, but that scissor sisters music video is genuinely special. Uh, There are certain aspects that are important, especially in his overall career, because he was meant to do a Rapunzel movie for years. And he uses that in the scissor sisters music video. And it works really well with, with the, the vibe of the overall tone of the song. And it's the scissor sisters are great. It's just a a great, great video that people should seek out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to, so my number, my number three is Rockadoodle. Wow. I have a very <laughs> soft spot for Rockadoodle. Um, it just means a lot to me. And I know you are going to think I'm crazy by putting it at number three and not having Anastasia in my top three, but it's three Rockadoodle. That's a total Billy Ray move. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love you, Billy Ray. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> two is two is the land before time. And one is American tale. So that's, that's my, those are my top three. I, I think, you know, Anastasia would clearly be number four and what yeah. separates them is very minute. We're talking about, we're talking in minutia, but my number five, frankly, is, uh, is very close between either secret of Nim or Titan AE. Titan AE. Wow. Interesting. Look, yeah. I have, I, I have soft spots <laughs> for those films. I really do. 
As well, you should. No, I mean, this is, I mean, you chose a, a really great director that you're passionate about, and I can't wait to do it again. We're probably going to, you know, make this another tradition where every year I, you guys get to, you know, collaborate and pick a pick hey. a director you want to talk about. Because I, I love talking to you both, and I'm glad that it finally happened, for sure. Oh, let's be clear. Literally two weeks ago, I reached out to Don Blue's people about seeing if I could get him to make believe this year. Because I wanted to do like <laughs> I really wanted to do like a big screening of something like I was like I could do, you know, a, a, an anniversary screening of something. So I want to get him here for one of his films. I'm really Aww. desperate to get him here. He's 86. So I don't know if he travels anymore, but. That would be we're, wonderful. We're going to find out. I mean, he still does conventions, though. I know. I see that he does hmm. that because what I want to do, I, I want to bring him here and actually do a screening of Titan A.E. That'd be fun. Wow. I want to do a Titan AE screening with him there and actually just talk about it, like just honestly and openly and be like, let's talk about this thing. Titan AE hive is going to assemble. And next thing you know, yeah, all those, all those think pieces that come out every year about like, you know what? This movie's actually pretty great. That's it's going to, it's going to, you're going to get flooded with those. Oh, you'll get, you'll, <laughs> I guarantee you in a couple of years, we'll get a Titan AE reappraisal. Yeah, reappraisal. That's exactly we'll it. We'll get a reappraisal. But they need to not go too hard because as much as I love that film, I'm very understanding of where it does not work. <laughs> like, I would agree. And I didn't feel as strongly, but I, I'm glad I saw it. And I think absolutely. seeing it on the big seeing it on the big screen, really, I would love I would I would actually go out and do that for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I got the I, I'm so fortunate I went and saw it opening weekend when it came out. I'm so happy that I did. I got to see it in that big screen experience, which at the time, those visuals were like groundbreaking at the time. And But like now you look back and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank uh, you guys so much for coming on. This was a, a blast. I, I knew it would be, you know, given oh. the director and given how much I enjoy your shows, both uh, separately and together. What is coming up on your shows? Just plug away. What's happening Ooh. on the incinerator coming up? Uh, well, uh, that's a great question. Since we program uh, the incinerator basically the day before we record, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you specifically what's coming up, but I can say that you will, within the next couple months, you will see an episode with the deaf crocodile team who are going to be doing uh, films directed by Clint Eastwood. Whoa, that, that's uh, going to be great. Okay. Yep, you can see an episode with Sam Inglis uh, from the Fearless Pretender podcast. And uh, I, I just know him as Dragon. Is that yeah, his name is Fanatical Dragon. Yeah, they're going to be doing a Jackie Chan episode. Huh. Huh. Yeah, so I can say that those are coming up. We've got a lot more in the works, but I, I don't want to plug too much that is not sure, entirely sure. settled yet. Because when I tell you that our schedule changes daily, it changes daily. And I always enjoy um, the Patreon episodes, particularly with Mitchell. They're the best. Thank you. We've got a we've got a new burn baby burn coming up very soon. Me and Mitchell are recording next week. Uh, we have uh, a new Southern Hospitality is going to drop very soon, and then uh, we are kicking off our Cut as You Go series on Penny Marshall uh, within the next oh. month as well. I've recorded two of those already. I'm trying to record a couple more before we start dropping, but that's going to be dropping pretty soon as well. So yeah, a lot, lot of stuff coming up. Our Patreon is cyclical, right? We'll go through a few months where it's just like really pumping, and then we'll have a couple months where it's you know you're still oh, getting, yeah. 
stuff, but it's not as active. We've kind of been in a little bit of the doldrums the last month or so, so we're, I'm ready to get back and, and get it active again. So Yeah, and these next three months, I just get swamped with new stuff to see because exactly. it's awards it's, time and exactly. crunch Same. time. Same. I'm trying to cram so much stuff in in November and December. Like it's yeah. so hard, but like I, I we're gonna we got the tournament champions that's gonna be coming up soon too. Woo! So like it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a hoot. Always a blast. I always look forward to that show. Thank you for doing it. Um, Ryan, how about you? What's going on with uh, Disconnected and all your projects? Too damn much. Uh, <laughs> every single Thursday, I do a live show covering all of the physical media announcements of the week. And if you are not tuned into the physical media world, that might seem silly, but uh, not kidding here. There are some weeks where I have more than 100 announcements to cover. Oh. And every single week, I bring on a guest to discuss all of those, react to them. And then we have a film discussion afterwards. And it's great. Uh, it's streamed live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, I also do an interview every single Monday that I put up. Uh, I'm in the in my lack of free time. I'm working on uh, special features for some of these physical media releases with a collaborative partner, and uh, we are under the pseudonym of someone's favorite productions right now, trying to bring appreciation for underseen films and make sure that people oh. are lifting up art and uh, viewing them all as legitimate and important pieces in our history. And uh, I've got a Patreon for Disconnected as well. If you want to be engrossed in a film discussion world that is welcoming and probably the most positive place I've ever seen on the internet, even though I'm slightly biased there, uh, patreon.com slash the disconnected and you will find it. Uh, not the disconnected, sorry, disconnected. Two C's in the middle there, though. Uh, there's a Discord that you can join there. I also put out a monthly physical media zine. And it's, again, there, there's lots of other stuff, but uh, can't can't plug for 20 minutes. So we'll end it there. <laughs> oh, you can plug for 20 I can, I can find a way to go 20 minutes, Ryan. Surely you could. <laughs> well, Billy Racel has two other podcasts he didn't even mention. <laughs> That's true. Movie mixtapes, which you can find me on that on the latest episode. Well, that is, depending on when you listen to this, of course. That is right. Jim was on our the one that just dropped last week, and uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right, Ryan. I did forget about movie mixtapes. Thank you for mentioning that, <laughs> producer Ryan. Um, yeah, movie mixtapes. I, I have a, I'm having so much fun with that podcast in large part because I can do it in an hour and not like four. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've had some great episodes so far. We've got some really cool ones coming up for October. Devon Taylor from uh, Spectre Cinema Club is going to be doing Sensory Overload. Uh, Ryan is going to be uh, uh, on Movie Mixtapes for the first time. Uh, we just recorded his Melt Movies episode. And uh, <laughs> yeah, Melt. We've also got uh, Dr. Rebecca McKendry and Lewis Peitz- and Lewis Peitzman who will be joining us as well. So. And as for this here's show, uh, well, I mean, we we were going to have this episode come out in September, but of course, our lives are very busy. But now that it's October, and this episode might even just drop the very next day uh, on October 2nd, but of Ooh. course, I know, I, I, it might be a quick turnaround. I don't know. I don't have to do a whole lot of editing here, thankfully. Uh, you know, just put on yep. the uh, opening song and the closing song, and I have no idea what that's going to be, but it's probably going to be something from American Tale. Uh, but anyway, I always try to cover a horror filmmaker for the month of October. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, but this, uh, the next episode is going to feature my librarian friend, Chloe, who uh, runs a really great like horror Instagram that I'll, I'll certainly plug. Uh, Chloe's not scared. That's Instagram.com. Chloe's not scared. Uh, she's an incredible uh 
librarian <laughs> that also loves horror and sort of promotes horror books and horror films. And uh, we've, we've gotten to talk uh, a couple of times and she has opted to ch- go for a horror filmmaker by the name of James Wan. Ooh. Oh, great choice. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious. I've, I have run hot and cold, but I would say for the most part, I, I lean more towards hot. Uh, oh yeah. I am so hot for James Wan. Ooh, well, we'll take that out of context. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I don't know about like outside of some of the horror stuff. I don't know if I will watch his Fast and Furious movie or Aquaman, but yeah, if I have time. But I'm probably going to stick to the horror stuff, to be honest, because I I do know I'm a fan of, you know, Conjuring and Insidious. Oh, I mean, sure. you have to you have to include his Fast and Furious film, though. I do. Mm. Absolutely, you do. Okay. Good lord! You can't. You can't. Is it good? I I just. All right. I don't know. I just. I mean, it's as good as the other ones are. All right. I'm not a big Fast and Furious guy. I gotta say. (laughs) I try. I mean, there's there's certainly one or two where I'm like, oh, that was a cool sequence, but I don't really care about any of these characters. Uh, But anyway, no, James Wan. Next episode probably be around Halloween is when that'll come out. But uh, thanks again to uh, my delightful guests here for being on the show and you can follow all their work. I'm sure I'll leave uh, links in the show notes and visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, find me at uh, Substack five years.substack.com. Thanks guys. This was a blast. Thanks Jim. Thanks Jim. But, but, terribile che esiste nella patria mia you think things were bad in Russia you should see things in my country <laughs> times were hard in Sicily we had no provolone the Don he was a tabby with a taste for my brother Tony when Papa went to plead for him the Don said he would see her. we found a rosary on the ground poor mamma mia But, but there are no-